John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Uh, hello, Cinephiles fans. This is the outlaw John Roca with uh, my co-host Steve Morris. Hello. And we are here to do a live preview for our special deep dive into the Avengers. You know, months ago, Steve and I came up with this idea to tackle these Marvel movies and we promised you we would tackle them to get us up to date with all the Marvel movies so that going forward, we will be tackling them within the 10-year time frame with which they came out. And the Avengers was the last one that we had to do. And now we're starting part one this week on the Cinephiles. Right, Steve? That's true. And John, we've already actually recorded a good section of part one. And man, it's already a great conversation about a movie that both of us have these really strange mixed feelings about, I think. Absolutely. And I think that's what's great looking back on a film from that time, considering how far the MCU has come, especially over the last 10 years. And you might think, oh, 10 years in a genre, is that really a lot? Well, Judging from the quality you're getting back then to the quality we're getting now and the expansive nature of the universe, it's pretty incredible to think how the seeds were all being planted in this Avengers movie. And actually, what an incredible achievement it actually was in the history of cinema, Steve. I I 100% agree because even though, like I said, there are things in it where I go, I don't know if this works or some things don't work quite as well. The the word you used is the right one, an achievement to bring, because this is really what launches the MCU. This is where they go, we can really do this thing and their ability to bring all these characters together to service them and have all of them shine. It's really impressive. Yeah. And just because there's uh, maybe flaws or things you might nitpick about it now, it doesn't mean that this wasn't an incredible moment in film history because so many comic book fans who had been on the fence or had been hesitant or cautiously optimistic after this film, the MCU, Marvel, Kevin Feige, And Disney had put so much credit, good credit, in the bank for them that they were willing to create space to have faith in the Marvel Universe going forward. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we're still uh, in the heyday of the MCU here in Phase 4. Well, and here's an interesting question is, is there anyone out there who actually hasn't seen this movie? Because if they haven't, well, they have to go to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream the Avengers along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. 
Absolutely. How many people have not seen the Avengers in, that listen to the cinephiles? I don't think it's a big number. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Uh, and also, don't forget about our Patreon, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. We'd appreciate you all coming aboard to support everything we got going on here on the cinephiles there are multiple tiers for you to join with multiple benefits and new benefits coming down the road which we talk about on the show as well so definitely join the cinephiles patreon to support us and everything we're going on like bringing these great episodes to you like the avengers this week well and it's funny you mentioned patreon john because i literally just finished editing our latest patreon short our cinephile short which is on the everyman the concept of the everyman that is on Patreon right now. That's great. And there you go. All right. Well, this is our preview for the Avengers part one happening this weekend. For Steve Morris, I'm John Roca. Get ready for us to go back to 2012 and enjoy Avengers. I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is the outlaw, John Rook. <laughs> I'm a writer, <laughs> producer, and host uh, here in San Diego, California. Um, and very, very excited to be jumping into this movie. It's been a I've had some really complicated feelings about this movie, Steve. So I'm really fascinated about this discussion that we're going to have on the film. And I'm looking forward to it. And I have a weird feeling this is going to be one of our favorite episodes. It's it, it's a it's a mixed movie and mm-hmm. has become more mixed for other reasons later on. Sure, sure. Um, and what this is, we know we announced at the beginning of this year that our new goal was that we were going to do every movie in the MCU. The lesser films would maybe get live shows and the yeah. more important films would get the full cinephiles treatment. And what we had to do was to catch up to mm-hmm. 2012 and then going forward, we're just going to do it on their 10 year anniversary. And the, we, this, with this film, we will have officially caught up Yes, because the Avengers was released in 2012, yeah. exactly 10 years ago. It's kind of crazy to think how much the world has changed in the last 10 years. Yeah. And I bet every 10 years people say that, but it's still just kind of crazy to see how much the Marvel uh, machine has exploded and really consumed our lives with entertainment, caused backlash, as well as high praise, uh, broken new ground, You know, been nominated for a Best Picture, so much has happened with the with this uh, with Marvel, and I got a feeling, judging from the most recent Wakanda Forever trailer, and I said this in my re- my trailer reaction on my channel, that uh, I think that film might be nominated for Best Picture and might win. So that could be a real n- incredible next step for for Marvel in the process, while Netflix is still trying to win that Best Picture right. Oscar, um, uh, lagging behind you. A, I, I saw that you had that reaction, but I I forgot to watch it. I have not oh, yet yeah. watched the trailer, so I have to watch it because that sure. first trailer wrecked me. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, and here's what's funny is is I like in 2008 when Iron Man came out, and then with you know Thor and Hulk, we kind of like going, wait, are they really doing this? Like, are they really gonna try to do the the universe, do yeah. the Avengers stuff like that? And then oh, it's yeah. 2012, and it's like, oh shit, they they're really doing this. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and it's incredible to think of the odds, yeah. Steve, of how many things had to go right yep. for them to be able to even get to this point. So we can see DC in contrast is it shows you like 
how you can fumble trying to get to the end zone where Marvel got to the end zone through some through some really hard work, good play calls, and uh, eventually got there. And uh, Avengers was the real wake-up call to everybody that they weren't going anywhere. No. And this was going to keep going and become even more successful. Well, and and like what Marvel did, I would say, in the 90s and 2000s in comics, yeah. a lot of it is about the in at, at the comics was the editorial staff and with the movies the development staff led by yeah. kevin feige it's not just a director or a writer has a vision it's right. a much bigger vision of this whole thing that they had figured out yeah. and um uh john do you remember how you first came to the avengers yeah well before we get into that steve we should talk to our um listeners about the patreon don't you think i mean we've been sure. really stressing and pushing and talking about the patreon on our um last few episodes i think we should continue that we've had some people sign up we've had some people go up uh higher to support us uh because of their dedication and commitment to our uh show and their love of our show and so just want to encourage you all who have not signed up yet or who are at a bit of a lower tier to uh, jump up on our Patreon, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. So you can keep supporting us and keep us doing the things that we're doing here. We're, we've been coming up with some great new uh, uh, benefits for you all, some watch-alongs, which we've got in motion. We're going to set aside some time for the patrons on our 300th episode, I think, coming up. And then we're also going to talk, you know, set aside some separate shows just for the patrons. That's what we're working on. So you will definitely get a lot of bang for your buck in becoming a member of the patreon depending on what level you you come at so we absolutely want to encourage you all and this is one of those this is one of those films that has been requested by so many of our patrons so we are very happy to be diving into this one well and i think maybe we should announce we've got two special patreon things that are coming up we don't have exactly all the specific details yet but one of the things we decided was that we were going to do a monthly watch along and October's monthly watch along is going to be Air Force One, which yeah. I have not seen since I saw in the theater. This came from when we were talking about Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to be doing that. And the other thing that's coming up and a, a date will follow very soon. we got to work that out. Yeah. And the other thing that's coming up is our 300th episode. Yep. Which is pretty nuts. And what we're doing, we are going to do a Q&A. But we're going to do it a little bit differently. It's going to start the first hour as a YouTube live show. Yeah. And then the second hour will only be for our patrons. And we're even going to do a third hour, which will be a special conversation with the very highest level of our patrons. Yeah. So it's another reason you might want to sign up on Patreon to get that exclusive content. Absolutely. So to go back to answer your question, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the first time I saw, I think I saw with everybody. I think I saw with our crew. We I saw, so we, we all got together and everyone was really excited. We were all cautiously optimistic that they were going to make this work because remember you that thor film didn't really excite too many people iron man 2 didn't get the best uh reaction so there was a bit of cautious optimism because of the captain america films because of the first iron man film so there was a little bit of cautious optimism going into this one and how were they going to make it work and i have to say when we left the theater i felt very happy about the movie at that time for sure I loved it. I totally loved it. We saw it in the theater. I think the more it's one of those sort of the more you examine it, there's kind of things that don't quite work as well. But the things that work in it work really well. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the biggest thing is just that ensemble of characters works together really well. Great chemistry know? with all of them. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, so we'll do a little bit of pre-production. Sure. You know, all, I think I mentioned before, but all this starts with Marvel getting a loan from Merrill Lynch in 2005. That's where this this is because they get a lot of money. Uh, the original screenplay was written by Zach Penn, who mm-hmm. wrote Incredible Hulk. And part of when they started to develop this, they hadn't even cast all the parts. You know, yeah. they started developing this before they had cast Chris Evans as Cap. They started before they had cast Chris Hemsworth. Like, yeah. and uh, Zach Penn is kind of just trying to figure this out as he's going along. Mm. And then they bring in Joss Whedon. And yeah. Joss Whedon had known Kevin Feige from back at Marvel Comics uh, and had been, they had been friends. And he basically says, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna work on this movie unless you let me rewrite that script. Wow, um, it's not surprising, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, frankly, if someone was hiring me, and I, yeah. I might very well say the same thing, you know, <laughs> okay. if I didn't like the script. So right, fair enough. Um, uh, and it's like that Hulk film, you know, blew the doors off anybody. So yeah. Well, it, it, this is what this is what he said to Kevin Feige. He said, "You don't have anything, and you should forget that this draft ever happened." Wow. That is how he described the script. It sounds like Joss Whedon, all right, considering some of the stuff that's come out about him. So what Marvel gave him was they gave him, these are these are the requirements we want. Loki is the villain. They wanted two big battles. One is a battle between the heroes in the middle of the movie and a battle against the villains with all the heroes together at the end. Mm. At, at the time that he started working on it, they didn't know that whether or not Scarlett Johansson was going to be in it. And so the early drafts, Joss Whedon wrote for The Wasp, which he wanted played by Zoe Deschanel. Mm, interesting. Zoe, interesting Zoe for The Wasp. Yep. Wow. Okay. And then he also felt that they needed a second villain. And yeah, we know that, wasp. oh. Hey, I'm the wasp. <laughs> I don't know if that would have necessarily worked. but I think, it, I mean, she's very funny and charming in her way. You know? Yeah, in her way. <laughs> she's a very specific thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, he he didn't think that one villain was enough. And I was just like, the, why are we always adding extra villains to these movies? But uh, so he wanted to add Ezekiel Stain, Obadiah's son, as a second villain. Oh, wow. And, and the big thing he kept thinking about was the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen was kind of his model mm. for how this works. And by the way, this is only his second film as a director. Right. Um, yes, 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 yes. And it, he does a commentary track. And in his very nerdy funny kind of way basically says that this movie was the making of it was just an enormous disaster yeah where he was just trying to stay ahead of it and it was just a total failure with a small group of people working together that finally solved the problems much like the avengers themselves Mm, you know right constant disaster all the way through until you finally (laughs) work together to solve the problems um it was also it was originally supposed to be shot in 3d um, oh, interesting. And, okay. Yeah. And the cameras, the, you know, they're really wonky and difficult to use. And so Joss said no. And they switched to doing a 3D conversion. Mm. Uh, it began filling, filming in February of 2011. It is mostly shot. This movie with all these incredible locations is mostly shot in Albuquerque and Cleveland. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and one other thing that I just think this is an interesting filmmaking geek thing is that in general, when you think about an epic film, and this is on some, it's a film of a lot of scale, you think of that super wide screen, you know, like 70 million millimeter, that it's like where the ratio from height to width is two, three, five to one, like a really right. widescreen movie. Right. They didn't shoot that. They shot in one eight five, which is, you know, more normal widescreen. And the reason is because the heights of all these actors are so different. <laughs> 
you have really tall people like Chris Hemsworth, and yeah. then you have Scarlett Johansson's really small. And if you have that really wide screen, it's hard to get their heads in the same frame. <laughs> so you have the less wide one that's a little taller, yeah. and they all fit better. I thought that was you can't awesome. thumbnail a movie. You have to actually <laughs> shoot it as it like, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I have one other thing to say, which is I actually want to approach this in a slightly different way. And here's right. the reason, which is people who've listened to this podcast have heard me use these terms, story versus plot. And this is part of the plot. And this is part of the story. Okay. And I've kind of explained them. But this is an idea that it originally came from Stephen King's book on writing, which anybody who wants to be a writer should have already writ read. And if you haven't, you should buy it immediately. Mm -hmm. It's one of the best books on writing there is. The idea came from him. And then when I was teaching film school, I started developing this more and more. Yeah. And this has became a whole lecture that I gave on story versus plot. And it's also a huge section in the book that I'm writing. Right. And the first example of explaining this concept is the Avengers. Mm, so I've so so as we go through it, now I'm finally will can go in detail and really explain what I'm talking about. And I'm gonna give you the just the, the basic idea to start. Yeah. So here's the basic idea is that plot is the external conflicts. Mm -hmm. So it is what people are fighting about. Yeah. So for instance, Jaws, the plot is a scary shark is killing people and we got to stop. Him. Right. That's the plot. Right. And you could take that. And if you said it was an alien or a serial killer or a monster, you could think of a thousand movies that have that basic plot. A scary thing is killing people. We got to stop it. Right. The story is the interpersonal relationships the, yes. The conflicts and the internal conflicts within people and the evolution of characters over time. Mm -hmm. And my contention is what takes Jaws from a basic monster movie into being one of the greatest films ever made is the story. Yeah. It's Brody, Quinn, and Hooper mm -hmm. and who they are and all of their really complicated conflicts and really complicated personalities. That's what makes it work. So that's the basic definition of story and plot. One of the games I play with my students is what I call, um, embarrassingly, plot quiz hotshot. And oh my, <laughs> yes, yeah, see, look, sometimes I make bad puns. And uh, the the basically, it's I challenge my students to say what is the plot of this movie and what is the story. Right. So with the Avengers, and what's interesting with the Avengers, even the reason I picked it is because you know it was the third most successful movie of all time. A lot of people right, have right. seen it. And this plot story thing is pretty easy to see when you have big adventure stories like this. Is I say, well, what is the plot? And strangely enough, people have a hard time sometimes answering the question. So, John, I will ask you, oh, what is the yeah. plot of the Avengers? Now, this uh, is the external conflicts. Loki comes to Earth to try to take over Earth for Thanos um, and has to fight the Avengers in the process. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent, excellent answer. Yes. Um, what is the story of the Avengers? The, the Avengers coming together and exactly. learning to work with each other and Nick Fury and defeat the, uh, uh, Loki by the end because they've come together as a team. You, you, dude, you passed my class. Thank you. You get I an A. So. <laughs> I I'm not kidding. Where it could be five minutes where people are trying to figure out the plot. Really? They usually uh, can figure because people don't remember. Like there's the Chitari yeah. and there's the Scepter and there's the right. Tesseract and like what is all that stuff? And my contention is. The reason the things we like about this movie are the story. Yes. It's not the plot. If you took if you took out Loki and said, no, no, it's a Doctor Doom story. Yeah. And he's it, you could have exactly the same oh, yeah. story with a different plot and we'd be fine. That's why that scene in the movie 
with the older gentleman who does, who's, who stands up when he was kneeling to say, yes. always men like you, that is essentially a bit of a meta shot at the plot. There are always stories like this. Exactly. What separates this story and Captain America coming in at that moment to save him is what saves that story because it's about them all coming together as a team. That's a great point. And it's not that you can't, you can't have that you don't have plots. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but it's what gets us emotionally involved is the characters usually. Yeah. They're ex- like back to the future, it's really plot forward. That's right. all plot, less than it is story. But anyway, but anyway, so that's the basic idea and we'll track this as we go along. Yeah. So, uh do you want to get it in the film? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So we start with that Marvel title and immediately we have this sort of blue fire stuff which is kind of hinting at the Tesseract. Yeah. And then we hear some voiceover, which says, The Tesseract has awakened. And basically, we get the information. We see yeah. this scepter being handed to Loki and that he's going to lead the battle and our force, uh, our Chitari, will follow. Yeah. So that's, again, plot. And then we see a helicopter fly into this complex and it lands and there is Agent Coulson, Agent Hill, which is uh, Kobe Smulders, and uh, Nick Fury, arrive at this big base which we have had teased in the uh post-credit scenes uh, right. in the past uh films leading up to this. so the stuff they're touching base on are, is stuff we've seen before you know the stuff out in space that we saw thanos getting teased so that's a connective tissue there uh you understand about the tesseract has made, been made such a big deal throughout so they've been, they've been laying the groundwork for this opening through their previous movies uh and then boom this uh flying into this base so both things are being established that we already know. So we've got 10 poles in the ground right off the bat that we are aware of. So we as an audience are not lost or wondering what the hell's going on. We've got at least these two things that we've seen before to keep us connected to what the overall plot is going to be. And then the story is about to start. I'm really glad you brought that up because it points out where fan service isn't exactly the right word, Mm -hmm. but the way this thing is done well Mm -hmm. is where geeky people will recognize a bunch of this stuff. Right. You know, and see, oh, that was this thing from this other place and we're back at this thing and that's but if you're not a geeky person, it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the film. Right. You can get the basic thing of what's happening. Right. right. You don't have to have picked up on that in order to enjoy this movie. Yeah. I um, almost wish I could be those people sometimes where you're like not constantly surveying the screen to see what you're missing or what you're trying to catch and all this kind of stuff. Because it must be nice to just kind of watch. Well, particularly now when you're doing these spoiler reviews where oh. a big part of what you're doing is pointing out all that stuff. Absolutely. Those spoiler reviews are just mind blowing for sure. My, there's so much to um, cover. And no matter what you cover, there's always someone who comes and going, you missed this. Right. You missed this. So, you know, you're always like, God damn it. So. Um, but so we go down to this huge, huge room, and this was actually shot in Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> the, the room that they are in is in the largest vacuum chamber in the world. Wow! Run by NASA. Oh, that's cool. And if you haven't seen it, I because I was looking at the space when they said that, I was like, oh, this is really familiar, and I realized what it's from yeah. if, that I had seen it. If you haven't seen it, there is someone who drops a bowling ball and some feathers to prove that gra- that things actually fall at the same rate. And so what they do is there's air in the chamber and they drop them and you see the bowling ball crash down and then you see the feathers kind of float down and hit the ground much later. They suck all the air out of the chamber, making it a vacuum, and they drop a bowling ball and feathers at exactly the same time and you watch them in slow motion fall exactly next to each other at the same speed. Wow. 
and it is so cool. So it's on YouTube. I highly recommend checking it out. And we're right in the middle of an emergency. There is uh, Stellan Skarsgård, who we just talked about in Goodwill Hunting, uh, playing Dr. Selvig. And we're having some energy surge that just happened on its own. And we're going to have to evacuate the whole complex. Yeah. Where's Agent Barton? The hawk up in his nest as usual. Which is the, the first sort of reference to him actually being Hawkeye. Yeah. I gave you this detail so you could keep a close eye on this. Well, I see better from a distance. Yeah, that's a cool line. It is a cool line. If there's any tampering, sir, wasn't at this end. At this end? Yeah, the cube is a doorway to the other end of space, right? Doors open from both sides. And I love the reaction from everybody in the room when he says that. Because they hadn't even, it looks like they hadn't even considered that, right? They were so focused on trying to open it, they didn't realize that there's uh, somebody trying to get to it from the other side, possibly. And that's what's smart about Barton in this moment. And look, it's a throwaway back and forth if you're not paying attention to it. But because he is someone who's been a spy, someone who's been a counterintelligence, someone who's been having to constantly find an exit every time he enters a room to be aware where the exit is, he is always thinking about the fact that there's something on the other side. So this idea, which didn't occur to anybody, of course it occurs to Barton because Barton is always wondering. And that's probably Mm. why he was watching from a distance because he sensed maybe something might come out the other side and he wanted to be ready for it in a tactical military position, which is the high ground with his weapon in hand. And it's also important because most of the characters of the Avengers have had their own movies. Yes, yes, yes. And were pretty famous anyway. And most people knew who Captain America was even before the movie comes out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas Black Widow and Hawkeye are not characters that everybody knows and they haven't had their own movies. And so we have to do a little bit more heavy lifting to establish who they are, which I think the movie does a good job of. Yeah. And then the whole place shakes and there's big explosions and blue flames and there's something in the middle of the Tesseract. And it's, it's, by the way, it very much reminds me of the Terminator appearance in the Terminator. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's probably done on purpose that way, I would imagine. Uh, And by the way, uh, Joss Whedon had seen Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki, in Othello Mm. in London and was, was a huge fan of him from that. Yeah. And I love he stands up holding that scepter and Nick Fury says, Sir? Please put down the spear. <laughs> and he starts attacking people. Bullets, you know, bounce off him. He throws knives. He wipes people out. He fires at uh, Clint, who dodges, and other people get hit. Um, and he's just taking everybody out. And then he gets to Clint and says, You have heart. And he touches him with the spear. And this blue light goes up him. His eyes go black, which is very disturbing. And then his eyes start to glow blue. Yeah. The blue was added in post. It wasn't an idea they had until they were actually screening the film. Oh. And and what happened was there were a bunch of people that really didn't understand that these guys were mind controlled. Right. Even with the change. So they had to change the thing on the iris on their in their eyes. Exactly. To give you one more clue that these guys were mind controlled. Yeah, that makes sense. And in fact, a lot of decisions were made in post. A Mm -hmm. ton of them. And, And we'll go through some of them. And what does Clint do after his eyes go blue? He just holsters his weapon. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. Loki, brother of Thor. Because he's obviously the Norse expert. Yeah. We have no quarrel with your people. And this is a good line. An ant has no quarrel with a boot. You planning to step on us? I come with glad tidings of a world made free. Free from what? Freedom. It's an interesting philosophy Loki has. 
Yeah, it's he's a fascinating villain because you know I mean he opens and I was thinking about this as rewatching the movie like he's everyone's so everyone loves him now he's so beloved of course and so that first season of the Loki show was really great in reestablishing people's love of him but I mean like the first appearance in this movie he is killing people uh, killing oh, yeah. these agents killing these soldiers um, and you know I thought to myself God wouldn't it be f- interesting to see it from like the family members point of view, everyone's like so in love with Loki and whatever. And then just to see these people who have dealt with the ramifications of the loss of their loved ones in the service of the government in a situation like this, uh, how would they feel about the fact that people love this person or whatever? So I'm always like considering other stories when I'm watching film, because you look at the, we, we sometimes can brush past deaths. Like, you know, you, you have Star Trek. We've, we love Star Trek and we know the red shirt deaths, yeah. are all just kind of part of the game. And so I wonder to myself as I'm watching, like, you know, how much time do we actually spend remembering how many people Loki killed? And we always seem to want to forgive them, like Anakin. Anakin killed all these fucking people, and people still want to somewhat forgive him for that or whatever, or like brush past the fact that he killed millions upon millions upon millions of people. And some people even try to say, well, he was following orders. You know, so get, the, get the hell out of here. He's just following orders. He's Great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the, the, it's it's so funny. I remember when we did Jedi, and it's just like yeah. the whole point of Jedi is redeeming Anakin. You sure. know, yes, that there's good in you. And I'm like, you know what? He's a horrible, horrible person. Like, I don't think he. I I like what Luke does, but I don't actually agree with it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, he's right. a bad person. I actually think this turning the villain into a good guy or teaming with the villain trope is way overused in comics and comic book movies. And, you know, we talked about it, I think, when we talked about Falcon and the Winter Soldier and what's his name? Uh, Zemo. Zemo. Yeah, Zemo. Baron Zemo, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you know, it's like uh, that guy caused tons of deaths and now we're kind of working with him. And I think the Loki one is interesting because, you know, Tom Hiddleston is just so damn charismatic and likable. But, man, they give him too many chances. Oh, yeah. Every movie, he's like, hey, I'm going to give you another chance. And then he betrays everybody and lots of people die. I'll give you one more chance. You know, <laughs> that's why I like what Thor says to him in Ragnarok. He goes, I, when he when he tries to screw Thor over, and Thor's one step ahead of him, he goes, "I knew what you were going to do, brother. I've accepted this about you now. I no longer am trying to change you. I know this is you, sir." Director Fury is stalling. This place is about to blow. Drop a hundred feet of rock on us. He means the barriers, like the pharaohs of old. Selvig gets converted, and then on their way out. Clint shoots Nick Fury. Does Nick Fury have a bulletproof vest on or something? I think it is because we see him pull out the bullet later when he's talking to uh, Hill, Maria Hill. Uh, oh, okay. Walkie talkie, yeah. Um, and uh, our bad guys head out with Clint and Dr. Selvig and they jump into some cars and there's Agent Hill who tries to stop them and does a very cool role, which is actually the actress and firing and it's pretty cool. And then we have this chase with Agent Hill chasing the Jeeps, with Loki in the back of the Jeep looking pretty cool. A pretty cool action sequence, particularly yeah. like when she does this like spin around and is yeah. in the car and the two cars are nose to nose firing each other. It's all pretty cool. Fury gets out. And one thing we should say, another piece of the plot is we hear something about phase two. Yeah, and phase two. We, yeah. we got to get the phase two stuff out. The fa- and phase two is, of course, uh, them trying to develop weapons using the Tesseract weapons of mass destruction so that's phase two that he's referencing to and of course it's kind of meta because avengers was the end of phase one right So fury saying phase two isn't ready and maybe is a little bit of a 
wink to the writers who are probably still developing with Feige phase two for sure. Well, and it's exactly what uh, Hydra was doing in Captain America. Yes. So S.H.I.E.L.D. is doing exactly the same thing that Cap was fighting against Hydra that they were doing. What a surprise. What a surprise. Nick Fury jumps in a helicopter and they fly out and they go out to the desert. And by the way, when they scouted this location, this is again outside of Albuquerque. Yeah. They're like, oh, this location's great. We're going to have the helicopter here and the cars and this action sequence. And not one person said, helicopters make a lot of wind. And we are at a place that's covered in dust. And so when they first went to shoot, <laughs> almost everything was unusable because there was yeah. just dust clouds everywhere. Uh, Loki shoots the helicopter and Nick Fury jumps out just as it's exploding. Yeah. The bad guys get away. Sound a general call. I want every living soul. Not working rescue, looking for that briefcase. Roger that. This is a level seven. As of right now, we are at war. Yeah, very strong moment. And I do love, they ask Nick Fury, what do we do? The camera pushes in on him. And then we see the Avengers title with that Avengers music. Alan Silvestri, fantastic score from him. Uh, people were saying like, oh, I remember during this time that people were saying, oh, none of the Marvel films have a, you know, have a score that you can remember, you know, there's no like Danny Elfman's score or John Williams, score. Right. And then I feel like Sylvester was like, you all right, motherfuckers. And bam, I dropped this score. And I think the Avengers score is fantastic. And it still endures today. Whenever you hear it, you immediately get like, Oh yeah. Uplifted when you hear it. Man. I think it's great. And it's such a short little musical phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. You know, and that it's like, and you instantly are in that thing. Yep. I am very curious of when the next time we're going to hear it is. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because there's going to be a team of some kind. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to hear that Avengers score, except for maybe an allusion to it. Right. I, I have a feeling down the road in Secret Wars, they will bring the original Avengers back together again for at least a moment or a scene in the film, in the film if they can bring... Downey Jr. and Hemsworth and uh, Ruffalo right. and all of them back together one more time, Scarlett and Chris all together one more time, because I think that is the next time you'll hear it. I well, and in Marvel Comics, new Avengers film. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are different permutations of the Avengers yes. that include different people. Of course. You know, so who knows? Um, and now we're going to go do the gathering the team sequence. <laughs> Which I always love. I love yeah. them in every movie, yep. including in Armageddon. Yes. Even though, even though it makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> Come get Papa Bear, baby. Yeah, but it's, they're it. always fun. And what's interesting is all of this was rearranged in post. Oh, None of really? this is in the order that it happened. Exactly. And a lot of this is Kevin Feige. It yeah. sounds like. Yeah. Smart. So uh, Natasha was not initially the first one. I don't know who the first one was. But we cut to her in some kind of warehouse. She's in a sexy dress in high heels or she's in a sexy dress and we're speaking in Russian and they are interrogating her. Yeah, she's tied to a chair. Yeah. It seems as if they are interrogating her, but in the process of interrogating her, they're actually saying a bunch of information about who their contacts are and where the suppliers are and all this kind of stuff. They put a gun like right at her and are abusing her. And it's like, oh, my God, Natasha's and she's in deep trouble here. Yeah. And then he pulls out the pliers, 
brings them to her mouth and we think, oh no, they're going to start torturing her. Yeah. And then a cell phone rings. And everyone's like, huh? What's going on? Answers it and they say, it's for you and hands it to the general. We have an F-22 exactly eight miles out. Put the woman on the phone or I will blow up the block before you can make the lobby. <laughs> they hand her the phone. We need you to come in. Are you kidding? I'm working. Love it. Totally love this moment. Yeah, such good. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. This moron is giving me everything. I don't give everything. I don't give everything. <laughs> and we have to say, like, I don't know how much we're going to get into the Joss Whedon stuff. Yeah. But he is a very clever writer. Yes. Yes. I think you can't deny that. While no. also, you know, being aware of this, the stuff he did in the past and to people. But yes. Yeah, clearly, because he's run numerous series. He's yep. written a number of films that have been well-received. So, yeah, you can't deny his ability with a, with a pen. And this concept that they think they're interrogating her, but in fact she is interrogating them is yeah. really funny. I've got me. Who's got you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always a switch, right? Yeah. yeah. I love it. Um, and then Coulson says the key words. Barton's been compromised. Let me put you on hold. Guy comes over to take the phone from her. She kicks him, and then this fight scene's really cool. It's incredible. Yeah, and yeah. I, I remember this being a thing that they teased ahead of time. Like, they showed her fight training before the film came out. to kind of, Because, of course, like you said, she didn't get her own film at the time. Right. So um, they really wanted to uh, get people hyped up to see her moves because that's what Black Widow is known for in the comics is her abilities to fight and get out of situations and use – the weapon she has at hand to get out of these situations because she's an incredibly clever assassin and secret agent. So it was great to get her to have this scene here and kick some ass. And while Scarlet did train a lot and did yeah. try to do a bunch of this stuff, I think one of the real heroes of this movie is Heidi Moneymaker, which is Scarlett Johansson's stunt, stunt double. Yeah. She is awesome. Um, and all the cool stuff that happens in here is her. Um, by the way, uh, and I, I totally relate to this. Joss Whedon had apparently written a story of someone fighting while tied to a chair and breaking the chair and how they use the chair as a weapon in like two previous movies that never got made. Wow. And so, he's, you know, he's just stealing from himself. He's like, oh, finally, I get to do this. The other thing that's interesting about the scene is when you tell the stunt coordinators, you know, OK, she's going to have this fight scene in this chair and do all this acrobatic stuff. But she's yeah. going to be wearing a slim sleeveless dress, no shoes. And all the stunt people go, oh, because they can't hide padding. Right. You know, it's like normally you pad up body parts underneath clothes that are a little baggy and that helps with the fall. Right. So what they did instead is the floor is actually somewhat padded. Oof. So to take some of the impact. And, uh, you know, she like, you know, hooks people with the chair. She does this flip shattering the chair. She does, uh, you know, falls back on her back and then kips up and then does those super cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Black Widow throws, mm. you know, grabbing someone with, with the legs and flipping over is so cool. And that is like a, a Heidi Moneymaker specialty, mm. that move. Where's Barton now? We don't know. But he's alive. We think so. I'll brief you on everything when you get back. But first, we need you to talk to the big guy. And she thinks he's talking about Tony Stark. Coulson, you know that Stark trusts me about as far as he can throw me. Oh. I've got Stark. You get the big guy. And then she says... Oh, is and for those of you who know the X-Men comics, that was a constant refrain from Colossus. And so for me, as I'm re-watching this for the, the, re the movie for this uh, episode of the Cinephiles, that 
moment stuck out at me because, of course, we're on the precipice of the X-Men coming into the MCU. We don't know what how they're going to come into the MCU. And we've seen Colossus already in Daredevil. So, I mean, sorry, Deadpool. So will that be the Colossus we get? I don't know. But yeah. Oshimoy was a constant refrain from Colossus and the X-Men. Mm. I think it was a nice little like um, reference for people who are uh, comic book fans to get. Well, and a perfect example of what we were talking about before, because I didn't get the reference, mm, yeah, but the but moment still totally works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and we cut to India again. This is all shot in, in New Mexico. And we see this little girl run through the crowd. I think the, the, the set decoration and how they shot this looks really good. Yeah. And she runs up to someone whose back we see and we hear something about a sick dad and a doctor. And then there is Bruce Banner, who is not Ed Norton. <laughs> yes. This was also a big deal, uh, the recasting. I mean, Marvel has successfully been able to recast characters in the MCU, and they've worked, I think, every single time. Uh, I'm trying to think of any time that it hasn't worked, yeah. uh, you know, because I I do like Don Cheadle's Rhodes. I would have loved to have seen Terrence Howard as, as Rhodes, mm-hmm. but I understand why they made the change. And the change here made sense as well, because Norton isn't, you know, they, there was just something about that Hulk that people didn't 100% like and where they wanted to go with it. I feel like Norton's energy is different than Ruffalo's. And Norton would want to control it, would want to be the focus of it. I feel Ruffalo's more in the flow of things. And so it felt like the better move to recast uh, in that situation as well. But it is funny that we're starting to see elements of that Hulk film show up now in the MCU mm-hmm. with the leader is coming back, Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, and we've seen Tim Ross Abomination and She-Hulk. So, yeah. Let me read you Marvel's statement about the <laughs> cast change. Oh, yeah, please. This is what Marvel said. Oh. They said, our decision is definitely not one based on monetary factors, but instead rooted in the need for an actor who embodies the creativity and collaborative spirit of our <laughs> other talented cast members. There it is. The Avengers demands players who thrive on working part as part of an ensemble, as evidenced by Robert, Chris Hemsworth, uh, Chris Evans, Samuel Scarlett, and all of our other talented cast. Yeah. So Norton's agent saw this, yeah. <laughs> told Ed Norton, oh. and he basically said, you didn't fire me, I quit. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> of course, to try to save face. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, and, and we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of rumors that he'll come back to play Hulk in the Secret Wars thing, too. Um, I think everybody, there are a lot of rumors that everybody's going to come back to play their old characters uh, in the Secret Wars situation. We'll see if that actually happens. Um, because certainly... You know, Norton has, if it wasn't for um, Wes Anderson, we wouldn't know Ed Norton that much anymore. Yeah. And so that humbles you as an actor. That humbles you. You you get older, you eat some crow, and it's there's nothing wrong with being cocky or having ego when you're young because you're trying to make it, you're trying to establish yourself. But if you step on toes, you burn bridges, it's going to take a long time to come back. And so I feel like um, people would be more open to seeing it now because they've been slowly bringing in elements, as I said, of that Hulk film into the MCU to be more prevalent. So we shall see. But I mean, that statement speaks volumes. And I do want to say we stress this idea of, you know, um, difficult actresses, but there's plenty of difficult men. And so it's like we've. Oh, yeah. There's the, there's a history of, of both happening in, in Hollywood and, uh, you know, both genders can be quite uh, egotistical can be quite uh, demanding on set, diva-like on set, male and female divas, uh, and so be it. You know, so and, and Norton was one of those that was a legendary for that shit. You know, and to me, I always believe when there's enough smoke, there's definitely fire. Well, and it's a weird thing because 
you know, I think we've done three Ed Norton movies. We yeah. did the Hulk, Fight Club, and we just did Rounders. Yeah. And in all of those movies, he was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. And and in particularly in Rounders and Fight Club, that totally made the movie better. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I know that David Fincher credited both Brad Pitt and Ed Norton with really making great changes and suggestions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Norton gets rewarded for that early in his career and then becomes probably more and more of a pain in the ass. Because you get, yeah, because yeah. people are like, yeah, definitely, let's talk to him. Well, and I go like, you know, Ed Norton, I could totally see Ed Norton going, no way, I will never work with Marvel again. Wait, how much money? <laughs> yeah exactly because I mean, you know it's gonna be like two days work or yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah. and you get paid a lot of money yeah why not yeah. uh but this is not ed norton it is mark ruffalo joss whedon says that he wanted him from the beginning i don't know if that's really true but that's what he says mm. so he follows this kid it through this neighborhood into this house and we watch the kid jump out of the window by the way i think this scene is beautifully lit yeah i think it looks really great uh the, the dp is uh seamus mcgarvey and I think he does a really good job on a very big, complicated movie. Yeah, and I'd like to say to people who are listening to us now, if you have Disney Plus and you have a 4K television, go back and rewatch these films in 4K. They are absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous. If you have the right TV, the, the transfer they've done, even on a streaming situation, they look fantastic uh, as I've been watching Avengers. All, I mean, I am literally can count the beads of sweat on Loki's face on his first appearance the cuts in the floor when the camera is dollying across the floor. It's incredible. So just that what Steve's talking about, the, the cinematographers, their work is really shown when you're able to see it in the best possible transfer uh, of their films. And certainly here, this is, if Steve's 100% right, this is a very well lit, very well shot uh, sequence. Should have got paid up front, Banner. You know, for a man who's supposed to be avoiding stress, you picked a hell of a place to settle. And there is Scarlett Johansson. Avoiding stress isn't the secret. This idea of the secret, what is his secret, is a thread we're going to see throughout the film. Yeah. This is a story element because one of the stories we track is can Bruce control the Hulk, the other guy, and what's his relationship to that? Yeah. That's part of the story. And basically she's saying we want you to come in. You know, we've actually protected you. We've left you alone. But now we need you to come in yeah. because not because of the other guy, which, by the way, I love the phrase, the other guy, the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but because he's an expert in gamma radiation and that's what they need to find. So Fury isn't after the monster. Not that he's told me. And he tells you everything. Talk to Fury. He needs you on this. He needs me in a cage. No one's going to put you. In Stop lying to me. Great sound mixing here to have the Hulk voice combined with his voice. Yep. Says that. Great sound mixing. She pulls out a gun, which has been taped to the bottom of the table that she's standing over, and he smiles. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was me. I just wanted to see what you do. And then I love that she touches her ear. Stand down. And we see that, in fact, this whole place was surrounded. Just you and me. Scarlett does a really great... Uh, she has a really great acting face here. Like you can tell that there's a lot going on in her face because she immediately goes to that place that the cold place she has to go to emotionally in order to do the things that she does to survive, you know? And so you see that and it takes a while for her to decompress from that face as uh, banner is talking to her. And that mm -hmm. that's, that's the mark of a damn good actress who understands you know, the, the levels that she's playing and the history of her character and what her character would do in that moment um, and why she wouldn't just switch because Bruce is like, you know, chill about it. She would actually take a while to unwind that that's been 
um, uh, wound up. I think this is one of, it's not that this is a secret, but Mm. one of the important things that Marvel did really well, as opposed to like those 90s Marvel movies, is that they cast really good actors in all of these parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the whole cast is are there are a whole bunch of people have been nominated for Oscars. Yep, there are a whole bunch of people who have really you know these are good actors. That's the secret gift of Marvel. That's why when, when directors like Scorsese or Coppola come after them, I'm like, you guys are fucking idiots. Like, they, no offense, I mean, you're idiots about your statement. You're idiots overall, uh, because there are incredible, incredible actors that are part of the MCU, which is why the MCU works. It's not just tights and explosions. There are real human journeys emotional journeys being taken by these characters because they've cast such incredible actors to bring these levels and complexities to these characters and they can confront ptsd and mental health and uh you know loss and um success and failure and all and fear all of it is there and that's why you cast such great independent film actors like ruffalo or cumberbatch or even scarlett johansson people forget she started out in Ghost World, that's where you really got to know her. And yeah, there was Horse Whisperer, but she was doing smaller stuff and then eventually kind of found her way to superstar status, you know? Well, so. And this is this is why this idea of story versus plot has become such a big thing to me, because all the things that you described, that all the things that the actors can get their sink their teeth into, that's the story stuff, yeah. all the character stuff. And that what Hollywood tends to do is they go, they want to imitate the plot. Mm-hmm. Is they go, oh, vampire movies are big. Let's do more vampire movies. Yeah. yeah Instead yeah. of going, well, why did that vampire movie work? Right. Or they go, yeah. Or they go, man, there was a huge action sequence. You know what we need to do? A even huger action sequence. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, Justice League is also a movie about getting the team together. Yeah. And particularly if you look at the Joss Whedon one, the story doesn't work at all. No, you no, have no. no involvement in the characters. Yeah. The Zach one works, though. I'll say that. Uh, it works better. Yeah, definitely works better. Mm. And now we cut to Nick Fury with the shadowy people on the monitors. Mm. And I, I don't think this stuff works that well. For me. <laughs> it's great casting, though. Powers Who's all in the booth? booth? Come oh, I didn't even think about it. Who's Who else is in there? Jenny Agutter is the woman. Oh. That's the woman, the actress from American Werewolf in London. And uh, oh. Logan's run. So j- having her as like the British representative with Cat Powers booth there as well is damn good. So I, I, I enjoy them coming. But I get what this felt like something out of a comic book, right? As opposed to uh, part of the situation or part of the um, uh, organic flowing situation of the movie that he would have to. Of course, he'd have to answer to somebody, though. So right. it makes sense. But I, yeah, it's kind of jarring when the moment happens. Because we don't hear him, you know, we don't sense that this is a prevalent part of the movie necessarily. So, yeah. Well, and it's like he sort of has to answer to someone, but he right. clearly isn't doing anything that they want him to do. Yeah. And the two things there, the push, we're going to find out that Fury tricks them in a, mm-hmm. a way. So kind of foreshadowing the push. And also he tells us that Thor is uh, uh, many planets away or many right. places away. So he's not part of the solution here just yet. So. We don't know where when Thor is going to show up or why. And but the basic argument is they think that these people for the quote unquote Avengers Initiative or whatever that they're too dangerous, too crazy freaks. And, yeah, freaks. freaks. Yeah. And why don't you use Phase Two? And he goes, <laughs> Phase Two isn't ready. These people may be isolated, unbalanced even, but I believe with the right push, they can be exactly what we need. War isn't won by sentiment, Director. No. It's won by soldiers. And the cut from 
War is won by soldiers. Who do we cut to? <laughs> Captain America. Yeah. But the thing is, this wasn't the original order that we mm-hmm. went in. So that was a discovery. They didn't, they, it wasn't written to be, you know, won by soldiers yeah. cut to the soldier. That just was something they discovered in post. Yeah. And this is the basically the scene that we saw at the end, the tag at the of right. Captain America, which is he's hitting heavy bag. Uh, by the way, there was a whole other sequence of Steve out in the world, mm-hmm. the modern world, doing stuff, right. including him going to a cafe where Stan Lee is. <laughs> and that was the original appearance for Stan Lee. Oh, that's funny. And the there was a woman who waits on him at this cafe and talks to him about stuff. Yeah. And that is the woman we're going to see later that he saves. Oh, in the diner. In the diner. Yeah. yeah okay. But that, but that. That was all cut out because they went, oh, it's not necessary. We don't need to. We, all, we, we get everything we need to get from him hitting that heavy bag. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I would think they would figure out something better for Steve Rogers to hit than repeatedly breaking heavy bags. Yeah. Well, um, I like, but I do like that we're getting the PTSD. Like, mm-hmm. that's what that essentially is saying without saying it, right? Yep. That he's remembering these moments and that he's unleashing his anger on the bag. And then destroys the bag. And I love that we pan down and he's got like a whole series of bags just like yep. there because this is nothing new for Steve. <laughs> but there's Nick Fury. And this is what we heard when we saw this scene before. You here with a mission, sir? I am. Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. So that's where it ended when we saw the clip on at the end of Captain America, I think. And then he tells him more about the Tesseract. He never knew that they found the Tesseract and have had it for, you know, a long time. The world has gotten even stranger than you already know. At this point, I doubt anything would surprise me. Ten bucks says you're wrong. (laughs) Which is a great setup for a payoff. Yes. Picks up a duffel. For some reason, he carries a heavy bag out with him. I don't quite know why. (laughs) I don't know. Just showing how tough he is. Strong he is, really. Is there anything you can tell us about the Tesseract that we ought to know now? You should have left it in the ocean. Yeah. Great line. Cut to underwater again this was figured out in post (laughs) the going from you should have left it in the ocean to underwater that was not how this originally went a great movie is like writing a great article like you you'll write the whole article and then you're like oh fuck it just doesn't seem to be fitting and then you're copying and pasting and moving things around all of a sudden it flows perfectly and so it's just you know, it's great that they they clearly sensed that they had to shoot all. Or they clearly knew they had to shoot all these scenes. It was a matter of how are we going to make the film more cohesive. Yep, and these are things that happen, and that's why you have to have great editors. I mean, you know, Steve, I know you make an effort to talk about casting directors because of Karen and everything like that, and it's just really important, of course. But editing is so essential. I mean, I, we don't stress enough how in, how essential editors are to saving directors' asses, saving studios' asses. And they don't get the $100 million contract or the $20 million contract to direct the film. But editors are just like linemen in football. Like that quarterback doesn't have time to throw that ball beautifully to that receiver for that touchdown in the Super Bowl if the linemen linemen don't do a great job blocking the other defenders from coming in and, and sacking him. So they don't get anywhere near the money the quarterback gets. And it's a shame, you know, because the editors are so essential here. And there are two editors on the film, Jeffrey Ford and Lisa Lasik. Mm. And, and obviously, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> and, and I'll just say the experience of having a thing that doesn't work and then moving something around yeah. and then magic happens. 
it, that's how it feels. It's like, oh my God. And what's so crazy about it is once you see it, like I'm sure once they put, you know, you should have left it in the ocean, cut to underwater. Yeah. You can't imagine it any other way. It's like, it almost feels like it's always been that way because it's so obvious. Yeah. But it might have taken you a year to find that obvious thing. Right. You know? Good point. Um, so Tony's doing something underwater and he's talking to Pepper about this thing they're trying to do. And by the way, uh, Joss Whedon, he didn't want any of the supporting characters in the movie from the other films. Oh, interesting. And it was Robert Downey Jr. that insisted Gwyneth Paltrow be involved. And what we hear is that they're basically setting up an arc reactor for the Stark building so that the Stark building will be independently powerful. Yeah. And this is also a piece of the plot. And he flies back, you know, always have these cool sequences where his armor is coming off. And then he has a flirty scene with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, the whole time ignoring uh, Jarvis telling him that um, Coulson is calling him. And then Coulson, like, breaks through. (laughs) It calls him anyway. And then in the middle of the phone call, the elevator doors open. And there's Coulson. I love that he says, security breach. Security breach. (laughs) And then she calls him Phil, which really sets him off. Phil? I can't stay. Uh, his first name is Agent. <laughs> and basically, he says, you know, we need you. First, we mentioned the Avengers Initiative, which Gwyneth Paltrow is obviously not supposed to know about, but does. Right. The Avengers Initiative was scrapped, I thought, and I didn't even qualify. I didn't know that either. Yeah, apparently I'm volatile, self-obsessed, don't play well with others. That I did know. <laughs> that I did know. <laughs> yeah, that's all funny. Yeah, they're such great friends, and the chemistry really bleeds through when they play these characters together. It's so good. You know, we see the cool technology as he takes this device from Coulson, and then he throws it up on the screen, which he's manipulating all these holograms with his hands. And we see, you know, shots of the Hulk, shots of Captain America, things about the Tesseract, which he takes like a 3D hologram version of it and is looking at it. Yeah. And so basically, okay, we've gathered him in, and now... We're on a jet, uh, which I guess is a Quinjet. Yeah. Coulson is talking with Steve. One of the things that Joss Whedon wanted to do was make sure that every single character has moments with Coulson mm-hmm. so that we see their emotional attachment to him. Yeah. Because he's the he's the catalyst for what brings the Avengers together. I got to say, it's an honor to meet you officially. I sort of met you. I mean, I watched you while you were sleeping. I mean, I was, I was present while you were unconscious from the ice. I mean, ho, no. I mean, ho. I mean, just plain ho. Just plain. <laughs> That's what I always think when this scene happens is like that scene from Biloxi Blues. So there's a specific kind of sense of humor in the Avengers, which is sort of dry and witty. Yeah. And particularly when you think about Tony Stark and all the things that he says. And this is how this started. Joss Whedon wanted to have a different kind of humor in the movie. Yeah. So he gave this Coulson is a nerd, you know, fanboy thing just to have a joke. It wasn't intended to be a part of anything. And then that became the center. The emotional core of the movie was something he just added to be funny. Yeah. But then he found, oh, it's this thing that we can use throughout the whole thing. Right. You know, culminating with, as you said, with the cards. Um, and we also hear that Coulson had a hand in redesigning his uniform. Yeah, which is so it really does border on creepy, but in a kind of a sweet way. Yeah. Well, Clark Gregg is such a special actor. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, he does so much with so little and is 
yeah, he's just kind of fascinating. Again, Steve, this is why you cast correctly. Clark is out of that Chicago school of acting, out of, I think, Steppenwolf, out of the Mammoth mm. stuff. So this guy is a very well-accomplished actor. And so he can play these things and play these notes and play them so well. Um, and that's why you cast someone like this. Again, it's so essential here to give these films much more depth than you would initially think they'd have. Well, and it's thinking in the future because he, he first shows up in Iron Man, right? Yes. Yes. Is that how many lines does he have in Iron Man? Like yeah. five, 10, five, 10 lines. Right. But clearly Kevin Feige is going, no, we need someone good because he's going to be in a bunch more movies. Yes. You know? Yep. We have plans for him. And now we cut to the bad guys and we see Clint and Selvig and Loki is there and he's like in a meditating position and he takes a deep breath and he disappears and he goes to some weird place in space and has a conversation with some alien. The Chitauri grow restless. Let them gird themselves. I will lead them in a glorious battle. Battle against the meager might of Earth. Glorious, not lengthy. By the way, the design for this comes from uh, Jim Starlin, who's a famous oh. comic book artist who yeah. drew a lot of Thor stuff and a lot of sci-fi stuff, and I think Adam Warlock, too. Great comic book artist. And basically, this alien is pressuring him, you know, that things aren't going fast enough. Yeah. And telling him what's going to happen if he messes up. If you fail, there will be no realm, no barren moon, no crevice where he cannot find you. These two scenes, the opening scene with him and this scene, this actor, who I confess I did not look up, um, is excellent. Yeah. And this could have easily been played, once again, of like mustache twirling, one-dimensional. But there's much more going on here in the back and forth with him and Loki that has a lot of dread. And the Chitari to me, are a bit of a letdown. I just give you a foreshadow how I feel about them as a, a you know villainous force at the end. But this guy is great. Uh, the back and forth with him and Hiddleston are so good, and especially in this scene as well. You can sense the menace. And, and then when you know, Loki gets snapped back uh, yeah. to Earth. You can tell that was a very uncomfortable conversation. And you actually see Loki a little frazzled by it. So that's the beginning of a little bit of redemption, a redemption beat that's played here for Loki, that he's maybe biting off more than he can chew or seeking yeah. something that he cannot control. Well, we do worry about him like a little bit. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It, it's all, I, I agree with you. It's basically, this is why I use this as an example in my classes. All the plot stuff is a little weak. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. And 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 that's why also I think people frequently don't remember what the hell it was because yeah, it's true. like, wait, what's, what's going on exactly? You know, like, uh, I don't quite understand. Anyway, he comes out of it. And now this uh, jet with cap lands on what we think is an aircraft carrier. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, they built this. This is on a parking lot in New Mexico. Mm. Apparently it was so hot that, you know, and the sun beats down on this, you know, blacktop yeah. that it, it, it melted Joss Whedon's shoes. <laughs> and you could imagine, John, shooting all day on like a fucking mirror in the middle of the desert. Yeah. No, thanks. And there is nothing on this set. They... They were able to get two planes. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Every This is just an empty, flat space wow. that ILM turned into the helicarrier. <laughs> so good. So and, good. Oh, even, and real quick, I do want to say Alexis Denisov is the actor who plays the other. That's the character that mm. uh, 
is they're having those scenes with Loki, and uh, he's really good. And apparently, a Joss Sweden graduate because he's been in the Dollhouse for a number of episodes and uh, Angel as well. So, oh wow, oh cool. Really and there's Natasha. There's quite the buzz around here finding you in the ice. I thought Coulson was going to swoon. Did he ask you to sign his Captain America trading cards yet? <laughs> But nice little plant, though, right? The trading yep. cards. The trading cards become the thing that Nick uses later, right? So this idea of being introduced in kind of a ball-busting kind of way, and that yet, and then later it having so much power is a nice little, um, a nice little job by uh, Whedon in the writing. And then up walks Bruce Banner, looking awkward and nervous. I, it's so. In- I love what they did with his character. Yeah. It's very different from Ed Norton. I just, he is so funny and all of his little mannerisms and he's so endearing in so many ways. Oh yeah, hi. They told me you'd be coming. Word is you can find the cube. Is that the only word on me? Only word I care about. That's a good leader. That's a good leader. Literally, that's what my next note is. Is That's a good leader. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Must be strange for you, all of this. Well... This is actually kind of familiar. And that's when they tell him they're going to have to step inside because it's going to get a little hard to breathe. And some big thing is happening to this aircraft carrier. Is this a submarine? Really? They want me in a submerged pressurized metal container? And then they look over the edge and there's crazy waves and froth. And then you see these huge propellers powering up. That shot and even the whole taking off of the helicarrier was not in the original script or the original movie. Wow. It was just, they landed there and then they were up in the air. Right, right. And it was Kevin Feige that went, no, no, we got to see this thing take off. He's right, because he understood. Because Feige is a comic book fan. The Seeing the helicarrier in person, on screen, oh, sorry, on screen, in live action, um, he knew all the nerds were going to nerdgasm in the theater. And sure enough, we did. We'd, as soon as those propellers were, I was like, ah, you know, it was cool. Um, and we walk inside to the bridge set for the helicarrier. This is a huge, huge set. Yeah. And it is really cool. Um, what I didn't know is like, if you looked at, you know, all these people at all these desks and all these computers. And if you look down it from a top down, the computers are all in the shape of an eagle, apparently. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It, it, it's a, it's a great, great set. And then we hear the order, let's vanish. And not only do we see the helicarrier take off, but we see it disappear. And what does uh, Steve Rogers do very quietly? Hand Nick Fury 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> we cut to Dr. Selvig, who is enraptured. He's so happy. Yeah. Because this thing is teaching him things, this Tesseract. And then uh, Loki goes to Barton and says, What did they show you, Agent Barton? My next target. Tell me what you need. I need a distraction. And an eyeball. <laughs> and then cut to, this is what we were talking about the whole time, Coulson asking for autographs on his vintage uh, trading cards. <laughs> yeah, if you have time. You know. Well, and, and, and the fact that he says, you know. Near mint. Slight foxing around the edges, but. We got a hit. So foxing is a very specific word yep. that I remember from work grading. I used to grade comics when I was worked at the comic book store, oh. you know. Location. Stuttgart, Germany, 28 Koningstrasse. He's not exactly hiding. And now we cut to Germany at this big gala. I love Loki's suit. Oh, yeah. 
and that just has that bit of green with the scarf. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he looks so cool. We see Barton shooting guys with arrows. Uh, one guy falls off the building, which I understand was a big injury off of. Yeah. That. I oh, think wow. it's off of the, yeah off of that fall. And Loki's inside this building that looks like this looks like the mat. You know, beautiful building inside. This is a courthouse in Cleveland. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Shit. That's a nice looking courthouse. Yeah. And he grabs some dude and flips him over onto this big statue thing, pulls out this crazy device and drives it into his face, cutting his eyeball out. I mean, this is a really brutal moment. And what we see is that uh, Barton has a similar device and it's making like a 3D version of the eyeball to unlock this door. And everyone, as Loki's, you know, killing this guy, is freaking out and running out. He walks outside, and as he walks outside, he transforms into what I would call the full Loki outfit. Like, mm-hmm. there's kind of the half Loki, and the full Loki's got the big helmet with the horns. He went full Loki. He did. By the way, we just did uh, Let There Be Your Last Battlefield on the Star Trek show, where one of the characters' names is Loki. <laughs> And the whole time I was prepping for that show, I went, okay, don't say Loki. You got to say Loki, Loki. And then I start working on this and I keep going Loki in my head. I'm like, no, no. Now we're back to Loki. Igor. Yeah. Igor. (laughs) Another movie maybe someday we'll redo. Kneel before me. And now there's suddenly four of him. We see one of those, you know, Loki tricks. Yeah. And with the four scepters, there's this light that goes around everybody in a square. Is he mind controlling them a little bit to get them to kneel? I think he's creating the illusion of a prison Mm. and boxing them in to make them feel like they can't get out. And that light kind of creates a, a peripheral idea that you're, you're stuck here. I don't think it's mind control because I think what he gets off on is forcing people to do stuff, not control. Like with, with Barton and with, Selvig and with the military guy that he controls at the beginning or puts the scepter on at the beginning, it's because he needs them to do things for him. These people, he wants to savor in their obedience. Mm. And so I, I don't think he's mind controlling in them. I think he's tricking them into, th- into thinking that there's no way out for them and they're stuck and they have to uh, pledge loyalty to him or fealty to him. Uh, One of the things I think doesn't quite track is the scepter and like what exactly it's doing and Mm. you know what effect it's having on people it's obviously has effects on people yeah it seems very vague it seems to do whatever joss whedon wants it to do whenever he wants it to do it (laughs) you know to do it well and there's this weird thing that they talk about later that the scepter is linked to the tesseract and it's like well what happened how did did it have powers when thanos gave it to him because he's shooting people as soon as he comes through you know like it's all a little bit like it doesn't quite all make sense yeah also this idea this narrative that he wants to the irony that uh, loki is the one who wants to take away people's freedom when he is the one that has essentially um wanted to uh, be free to rule and be free to do what he wanted to do it's ironic that he's the one that's thinking that he needs to subjugate people all over the galaxy you know Again, it's all the plot stuff that yeah. kind of like just doesn't all fit together that well. I mean, it's kind of an interesting idea that he says the reason all of you are so unhappy is because of all your freedom. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. And then this old guy stands up oh, and said, and it's great. That's such a great scene. Not to men like you. There are no men like me. 
There are always men like you. My thought about him is that he's a Holocaust survivor. Of course he is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's why they gave him that accent uh, that he's putting on. Because that guy's a character actor. You've seen him in a million things for decades. Oh, yeah. Go all the way go back to the 70s sitcoms. He pops up and shows up. He's so good. I mean, I remember, in, I think he's in Speed as one of the dudes who is in charge of the crew there when they're uh, dealing with the, uh, or maybe Sansa Lambs. One of the two that he's there, he's in mm. charge of the guys there. So, But he's such a great actor. So to have him have that, and he was kneeling before because, right. of course, self-preservation, whatever. Let me get out of this situation. But then him walk and and they're in Germany. So there's yeah. a lot of illusions here. And so it's a powerful moment. And again, that's why you cast a really good character actor to give yeah. such emotion to that line. Look to your elder people. Let him be an example. And he opens fire on him. And there is Cap who blocks it with the shield. Great, great entrance. You know, the last time I was in Germany and saw a man standing above everybody else, we ended up disagreeing. The soldier. And there is Natasha flying the jet, and he fires, and she dodges. And now we have a fight with Cap and Loki. Um, and it's I think this is a well-choreographed fight. because yes. yeah. Because Cap surprises Loki with how well he does. Yeah. But Cap is also outmatched. Yes. I think that's really good. And then we're up with Agent Romanoff, who's in the jet, and suddenly we hear rock and roll music and something happens to her screens and we hear Agent Romanoff. You miss me? And there's Tony Stark. And Scarlet's slow smirk is great. And yeah, what a great entrance Tony coming into. I think it's a little heavy hand that he comes into Thunderstruck again because that's what he came in to in Iron Man Mm. 2 to that expo. So oh. maybe they were trying to say, for those of you who don't really like, you know, do spoiler review videos and connect everything, remember this guy. So, you know, it just, it just seemed a little on the nose. They didn't need it, but I get it. It's Tony Stark. You know? And uh, he blasts Loki, goes down, and then he says, make a move, reindeer games. <laughs> Great line. And Loki fades back into regular clothes and gives up. Yeah. Curious. Well, this is the thing is so. Loki, obviously, is part, this part of his plan, he's given up on purpose. Our guys are so dumb. I mean, like, yes, later on, Nick Fury does have a line that's like, it seems like the only person who wants to be on this boat is him. <laughs> but it's like, obviously, this is part of Loki's plan, and they don't pay enough attention to this at all. Well, but also be aware, they're, they're still coming together as a team. So they're Agreed. not of one group think, and they're kind of, you know, kind of going along with what needs to be done here. Because no one's really taken the reins as the leader to be the person who should be thinking for everybody um, in a situation like this. Because you know, they're all alphas. Yeah. But you need to have one central alpha that the other alphas agree to have as the central alpha so they can follow uh, along or follow their orders. Well, and they do talk about it. I, yes. I should say it's, it's, it's not like they ignore it. Because on the, on the jet, they say, I don't like it. What? Rock of Ages giving up so easily? I don't remember it being that easy. <laughs> you know, Robert Downey Jr. is always funny. Still, you are pretty spry for an older fellow. What's your thing, Pilates? The beginning of their constant yes. back and forth with each other, for sure. Fury didn't tell me he was calling you in. Yeah, there's a lot of things Fury doesn't tell you. This will be one of the story threads. Yeah, Can we yeah. trust Nick Fury? These are all the things that work in the movie. And then, suddenly, there's lightning. What's the matter? Scared of a little lightning? I'm not overly fond of what follows. <laughs> And then Thor lands on the top of the jet. Yeah, 
very with his beautiful hair streaming of behind course. him. <laughs> By the way, I love short hair Thor so much better than long hair Thor. Okay, uh, it's just just for the look. Which one's the plot? Which one's the story in the hair? <laughs> oh, that's a, oh, well, th- the short hair is part of the story. Yes, it is. Because Thank it's you. what happens to Thor. That's right. Stanley. And even gro- growing his hair back is kind of part of the story. There you go. Yeah. Good stuff. So Thor comes in, grabs Loki, flies away, and Tony starts to go to follow. I love this line. Stark, we need a plan of attack. I have a plan. Attack. That's a clever line. Yes, it is. And what is, it's not just the conflict for this movie, but it's the conflict central to the entire MCU is Cap and Iron Man. Yeah. And that is definitely story. And Cap grabs a shoot. I'd sit this one out, Cap. I don't see how I can. These guys come from legend. They're basically gods. There's only one god, man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. What a, what a subtle way to throw in religion, right? In this, yeah. And of course, because he represents what we, in our minds, have or what has been presented to us as the all-American boy is he's a God-fearing guy who always does the right thing, respectful to people, respectful to women, not racist, all these things. And so he represents that. And so making that comment just works well with Captain America, because of course, as the MCU goes along, we're gonna get all kinds of gods and eternals and all this shit that's going to Egyptian gods is going to throw everything out of whack. Um, And it's no consequence that they remove Captain America and then all this stuff starts to happen. So um, it's interesting, but yeah, I love that line. I I, I absolutely a hundred percent agree. I think that is perfect for his character Um, by the way. And I've never figured out how to articulate it well, but I, I wish I, there is the word God, as Cap is using it right there, and the word God as applies to Asgardians or the Egyptian gods, all this stuff, they're totally different. Yeah. Like, because I like that basically they said, no, what it really, the Asgardians are really powerful, really long lived aliens. Yep. They're, you know, they're not gods the way that the god that Cap just mentioned is God. Right. You know, Thor lands, they're in like a forest, and we get your basic Thor Loki argument. I thought you did. Did you mourn? We all did. Our father. Your father. This is their story. Yeah, is the si- yeah, it's the sibling rivalry, is that he was lied to and that he's a frost giant or whatever it is. We were raised together. We played together. We fought together. Do you remember none of that? I remember a shadow living in the shade of your greatness. I remember you tossing me into an abyss. I who was and should be king. Thor is trying to convince him to give up. And like, it's even, yeah, we're going to forgive you again, Again. despite all the murders and betrayals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, listen well, brother. And then out of nowhere, Iron Man hits him and he goes flying out of frame. I'm listening. (laughs) This is a classic Joss Whedon kind of joke. And we're going to see versions of this multiple times in this movie. And then now we've got the Iron Man and Thor conflict, you know, <laughs> let's, let's take some arrogant guys yeah. who are not necessarily very reasonable. This is how Joss Whedon and Robert Downey Jr. work together. Okay. We know that Robert Downey Jr. is not necessarily going to follow the script. So what he would do, Correct. he would say to Joss, give me a couple of things. And Joss would throw out a couple of ideas for jokes and then Robert Downey Jr. would improvise with them and they would pick the best one. So Joss threw him 
Shakespeare in the Park. <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. comes up with, Doth mother know you weareth her drapes? And they did this throughout the whole movie. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I think some of the some of the humor here gets a little creaky uh, looking back on it with 2022 eyes um, for sure. But, the you know, and, and Stark, his humor. I don't think nowadays that kind of humor would 100% work in the MCU they've constructed. I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I'm glad you said this because I have the same feeling. Yeah. And, and there's it's twofold. Yeah. One is I just think... Look, Robert Downey Jr. is very charismatic and very, oh, yeah. and very charming and very quick-witted. Those jokes, do they get old. I, it's yeah. like watching it the first time, watching Iron Man the first time and watching this the first time, they're hilarious. Watching it the fourth time, it's like, yeah, okay. And and and, and this is the other thought that I had. And this is – it's it's a thing that – why I think this movie doesn't hold up as well as I really want it to. Yeah. That you have Iron Man – where you have a character who starts off as a jerk, yeah. this arrogant, insensitive, doesn't care about anybody but himself guy, who then goes through a transformative experience and at the end takes on more responsibility and seems to become a better person. Yeah, Iron Man 2, he's near death, alcoholic, absolutely horrible, and then he goes through a thing and hopefully becomes a better person. Right. In Thor, it starts off, he's an arrogant jerk. Yeah. You know? And then he goes through a bunch of stuff and becomes a better person. Well, it feels like we have to now reset them, mm -hmm. you know, because they're acting like morons. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so it's like, wait, did they, did they learn nothing? Like why would Thor just grab Loki? Right. Without Loki? checking with them. And, yeah. And then Iron Man just is, you know, hit first, ask questions later. Well, that's why you need Cap to try and stop yep. him, which is what he does because yep. he's, the, he's actually the leader of the team, whether Stark wants to admit it or not. Absolutely. Those decisions he makes in those moments yeah um and there i'll just say there's some fun moments in this fight there's fun moments where they headbutt each other and blast each other and they each underestimate or like thor hits him with the lightning and that charges him up and then he hits thor and it's fun what's really interesting i noticed this time around too real quick steve was that the look between loki and thor i don't know why i've never caught this before but loki is smiling because of yeah that was obvious but there's even a smirk that comes comes across thor's face before he faces off with Iron Man. Mm. To me, it made me feel like whatever's going on outside the family, these two guys have been through wars and battles and whatever before. So there's almost a sense of like, oh, this is going to be fun. And I'm going to enjoy watching this. And Thor's almost like, yeah, this is going to be cool. So it's almost like this weird Asgardian cockiness, Asgardian rather cockiness there that they're going to like, that Thor's going to have a fight while Loki watches. Like, this isn't the first time this has happened. And so the weird smirk between them kind of alluded to that a little bit in my mind. I think you're totally right. I think you're totally <laughs> right. And and it's it's the twofold, I think, of this is all part of Loki's plan. And yeah. watching his brother get beat up a bit is fun for him. Right. And it's Thor's arrogance and I love a good brawl sort yeah. of stuff going on. Um, but as you say, the real leader, Cap, shows up and just says, that's enough. And they do stop. And there's this moment of like, oh, good. Cap's the leader. He's going to set everything. No, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> I've come here to put an end to Loki's schemes. And prove it. Put that hammer down. Uh, yeah, no. Bad call. He loves his hammer. Thor comes flying at uh, Cap. The hammer hits the shield. And there's just this explosion that knocks all three of them down. And that's going to be the end of the fight. I'm just going to say, you know, the <laughs> all the physics of... Iron Man and Cap, 
you know, just don't, don't work. You know, Tony would totally be dead. Yeah. And I still think that th just because you have the shield that can stop anything doesn't actually mean that your body can handle all the force, yeah. but it's a superhero movie. So I'll, I'll sh I should shut up here, here. Here's the big thing is it's not just that we suspect that Loki wanted to get captured. Yeah. At this moment, Loki should have run away. Right. Should have absolutely taken off. He's as guardian. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. And the, and none of our guys are saying, obviously, he wanted to get captured. That should be the first thing they're talking about. Not yet. Right. But they do. Yeah. But eventually but, they do. Eventually they do. Yeah. But we cut back to the helicarrier and a fantastic shot of Loki in chains being marched down with by the guards. It looks really, really cool. And everyone's sort of aware of him coming in. He smiles at Banner as he's walking. Oh, by, yeah. Which, uh, you know, I'm sure Hiddleston did a lot of smile practicing in the mirror because he smiled all through this film. I have a question. I was debating when to bring this up. Yeah. Why did Loki let himself get captured? Um, good question. I, I, From what I see in the movie, it is to see what he's got with Hulk, have a good idea of what the um, the team looks like and try to as they discover before they take off to New York, destroy the team from within. So it was a way of throw. He's the God of mischief. So naturally he's got a mm. mischief here. He, he knew the Tesseract would at some point cause them to turn on each other. So it was a matter of him wanting to be there when it all happened and scouting his enemy and then, you know, taking out his brother uh, in the process. I think you're right. I think that's what mm -hmm. it is. I think there's this moment which we're going to get to where where Natasha figures out that it's all about the Hulk. Yes. But I don't think the Hulk actually does anything specifically that helps Loki. Right. Um, and I also think Loki has the Tesseract. Mm -hmm. He has the Iridium. He There's literally nothing in terms of the plan of bringing his army to Earth that has to do with him having to get captured. Right. Uh, but I think you're right. Like, it, it, and maybe, maybe they just, I don't think they deal with his motivation that well of how important it is to him to mess with his brother and mess with the team yeah, yeah. compared to how important it is to take over the earth. Right. But so I think, I think what you said makes sense. Anyway, yeah. uh, Nick Fury shows up mm -hmm. and they bring Loki into this room with the, I'll call it the Hulk cage. Yeah. The Hulk cage. And shows that we can open up this hole below it and drop him 30,000 feet. It's an impressive cage. Not built, I think, for me. Built for something a lot stronger than you. Oh, I've heard. A mindless beast. Is it true that everyone is kind of listening in on this conversation? It seems like. Yeah, because yeah, you see Natasha, you see Bruce, you see everybody listening in. That also seems weird to me that Fury would let Bruce know yeah. about the Hulk cage. Right. I, I do love the moment as they continue to argue. Burns you to have come so close. To have the Tesseract, to have power, unlimited power, and then to be reminded what real power is. Well, let me know if real power wants a magazine or something. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So it's interesting that they built sort of the conference room table is part of the bridge. Yeah. Where um, everyone can listen in on their conversations. On, yeah. on what you would think would be kind of private conversations. Yeah, between heroes, yeah. Um, and the thing is, because the table is so big, it actually makes it really hard to shoot. Mm. Um, because you're automatically really far away from each other. What's his play? He has an army called the Chitauri. They're not of Asgard nor any world known. He means to lead them against your people. 
they will win him the earth. I have no idea how Thor would know this. <laughs> I, I don't know either, but, you know, considering it wasn't there at the beginning of the movie, maybe he found a way, maybe he sourced it out, maybe heard it in the galaxy. Also, it's very convenient that Jatari <laughs> is not connected to any other, you know, yeah. planet or anything like this. For some reason, they're just wandering mercenaries, and he's going to yeah. use them. I like that you said he just heard it around the yeah, galaxy. Yeah, I mean, that's the best <laughs> just, I can you know. With, you know? <laughs> um, what they're doing, what Joss Whedon is doing is creating all the little bickering conflicts yeah. between them. So Bruce says something insulting about Loki, and, he, and Thor stands up for Loki. I've care how you speak. Loki is beyond reason, but he is of Asgard, and he is my brother. He killed 80 people in two days. He's adopted. <laughs> And then Tony comes in, irritating everybody with his jokes. <laughs> yeah, the Tony entrance is fascinating to me because yeah. we allude back to the Coulson cellist thing that we heard about with uh, Pepper back there because we're talking about the cellist, the woman in Portland, and he's like, keep love alive. And those are those little moments that now, to me, don't work. They feel mm -hmm. very ham-handed and forced. And there was a lot of that at the opening of Avengers Age of Ultron that it was so annoying for me because – there's a thing about timing with humor. And I think when Downey hits that timing correctly with the script, it works really well. Um, but with here, it feels kind of forced always coming in mid converse as if Colson would be like, oh, sure. You know, I mean, Colson, when he was there, he violated Stark's security. He, you know, invited himself into this place. So why would he be like, oh, yes, Mr. Stark, tell me about flying me to Portland or whatever. Like, I don't think he'd give two shits. And so it's yeah. just a weird kind of thing to have him walk in this way but then that's tony maybe trying to disarm everybody and then switching into speaking all this stuff about what's going on um science-wise you know that man is playing galaga thought we wouldn't notice but we did and there is a moment where he is basically asked how fury can see all his stuff with his yeah. only one eye and then during this he plants some sort of electronic device and then they talk about that some for some reason the tesseract which they de have described as a self-creating power source mm. that they cannot shut off because it just will generate more power and keep going but it needs to find a power source to kickstart the tesseract yeah which we've planted as the arc reactor from you know the stark building yeah. and i just i don't think it makes any sense at all uh it's very bizarre when did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics last night I feel like Colby Smulders practiced that line in the mirror like <laughs> hundreds of times just to get that. Just the way she says it, you can tell that she's like, oh, I got through that. You know, he compliments Banner on his work and then also compliments him by saying, and I'm a huge fan of the way you lose control and turn into an enormous green rage monster. Tony would irritate me so much. I, oh, he would drive you insane. Insane. He would drive you. I would be like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, I feel like if I had the level of confidence he had, I think I'd be like him, which scares the shit out of me. Because I mean, <laughs> it's the kind of that when you have that kind of swagger and belief in yourself, it's yeah. certainly an unsettling thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, but look at the two approaches, right? When when um, Captain America meets Banner, he says, "I heard about you, Mister uh, Doctor Banner, or whatever," and he's like, "Is that all you heard?" Because that's the only part I care about. And yep. that was a really great way of saying I accept this other part of you. But I don't. But I also trust you to handle it. Yeah. This is Tony trying to make him more at ease with him by complimenting him first, and then sliding in the fact that he loves that he's uh, you know becomes the Hulk and shit. So it's two different approaches, right? Of, of how to lead. Well, the thing is, is Tony wants some chaos. 
Yes. You know, he likes to mess with people. He wants to see what reactions people are going to have. Right. And like in the plane earlier when he says, I do have a plan, attack. That's the difference. Uh, Steve is, let's map this out. Let's go, you know, this military thing. We've got to order, blah, blah, blah. Tony is very much, as you said, chaos, fly by the seat of his pants, figure it out as he goes along because he's a fucking genius. Yeah. So for him, his intellect is the plan always. And that's what he relies on. But not everyone is as smart as he is sometimes. And that's where he finds his uh, uh, problems and issues as it goes along. Well, and it, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. That's and, true. Too. I mean, like how, him rushing in, did that work with Thor? Right. Not no. particularly. Yeah. You know, how often is him going, hey, I'm smart enough. I'll just figure this out. How often does that work out? Yeah. It's a good point. You know, yeah. um, by the way, at the end of the scene, the last thing we cut to is a guy playing Galaga yeah. on his computer. And I went, how did this happen? Because I just assumed that Galaga line was an improv. Right. And in fact, that Galaga line was an improv. <laughs> they had no intention of doing this gag. And then the, again, they're in post. And, and uh, somebody said, what if we did this? And so they said, and sometimes you have to do this. Like, let's shoot it. You know, it's just one shot. Let's shoot it and we'll cut it in and we'll either keep it or we don't. Yeah. And they cut it in and they went, you know what? It's really funny. So they kept it. Yeah. We are now in like the lab. Tony is encouraging uh, Bruce to come with him to his lab where he's got all the cool stuff. Well, I promise this stress-free environment, tension, no surprises. And he pokes him with something that looks kind of electrical. Ow! That is Robert Downey Jr.'s idea. <laughs> he said, there's no way Tony gets in the room with the Hulk and doesn't poke him. <laughs> Verbally or physically, yeah. <laughs> and then Cap enters. Hey! Nothing. Are you nuts? So Cap did not enter. Oh. He was in the scene the whole time. Oh, wow. They digitally removed him in post what? so that he could walk in on this line. <laughs> That's great. It works. It, it works. It does. It totally works. Yeah. Uh, I, I also do like. Is everything a joke to you? Funny things. There, there are some good Tony lines. Yeah, with Cap. <laughs> um, again, Cap coming back saying. Everyone's security on the ship. You don't think about anyone else but yourself. And now we get into one of the other tensions, which is what is Fury not telling us? You think Fury's hiding something? He's a spy. Captain, he's the spy. His secrets have secrets. That's when Tony reveals that he's got some, you know, encryption thing breaking down the secrets on the computers. In a few hours, I'll know every dirty secret S.H.I.E.L.D. has ever tried to hide. Blueberry? Yet you're confused about why they didn't want you around. The scene's really interesting because, A, you're bringing up the idea that he doesn't trust Fury. Um, and clearly there's an issue here. And also we're laying the groundwork for that. That scepter causes division. We have orders. We should follow them. Following is not really my style. And you're all about style, aren't you? Of the people in this room, which one is A, wearing a spangly outfit, and B, not of use? Bruce actually turns and says, Steve, do you really think... He says Steve, which is really important, right? Because mm -hmm. Tony's still calling him Cap. Steve, tell me none of this smells a little funky to you. And Cap doesn't want to hear it in like a good leader, he's not going to betray possible questioning of the of the uh, person who's overall in right. charge of things just yet because you don't want morale to go down because people are questioning all their orders. You want people to stay on point. Then you, as the leader of this team, in your mind, goes on your own expedition to try to figure out what's actually happening here. So then, and then you can go back to them and have the conversation. So I like that this scene kind of lays that out a little bit because that's how we see Cap eventually when he walks out, turn around and go and try to find out what phase two is all about. I think that's a great point. And I hadn't thought about it that 
Cap does share those suspicions, but yes. he doesn't want to share that he shares those suspicions. Exactly. That's really, really smart. And you're right. It is a good leader. I, I finally put my finger on what sort of isn't doesn't quite work perfectly for me. Uh-huh. And that is what you were talking about, which is the scepter ups the sort of tension and anger. Yeah. And because of because the scepter is upping the tension and anger, it actually we don't get the actual conflict between these people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you feel like it's fabricated as opposed to authentic. I don't know what to what degree it's fabricated. Ah, yeah. You know what I mean? Because also I'm going there, man, there, b- before I realized that the scepter, because at this point in the movie, I don't know that the scepter's affecting right. them. No, you're right. And so I'm just like, man, these guys are such jerks. And again, it's repeated viewing. The first time I saw this, I just thought it was all really fun. Yeah. Repeated viewing. I like them less, but it's part of it is because of the scepter thing. Yeah. Um, but now we have Bruce and Tony alone together. And it's really interesting that the, that basically Tony is comparing his situation of needing the thing in his chest to keep him alive and being Iron Man yeah. to Bruce's situation because he implies that it was actually the other guy that saved him from the gamma radiation, like right. his power saved him from being from dying. Right. And by the way, there's there's one line that this is a, a Robert Downey Jr. line. Not just armor. It's a terrible privilege. I think that's a good line. I agree. So you're saying that the Hulk, the other guy saved my life that's nice saved it for what i guess we'll find out i have another question for you yeah it's very clear that bruce doesn't want to use the word hulk he says it and then he corrects himself and refers him to the hulk as the other guy right why do you think he calls him the other guy um i think it's probably a um a way of dealing with this idea of having a split personality right i mean look i'm no therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist to really di- kind of dissect this kind of thing but calling it the other guy means i don't have to take responsibility mm. for what that thing is doing right and i can delude myself that that's not really me right how many people say that when they're going through addiction the other guy when i become that other person you know people say that all the time certainly in split personalities that's kind of that thing or multiple personalities that idea oh if you name that david did that that wasn't me right and so there's a way of removing responsibility from the central core of the person uh so that they don't have to feel the extra guilt of what the other guy does when they are the other guy again i feel like john you're on fire today i really (laughs) do because you just made so many things make sense in my brain which is that and again this goes to this idea that i talk about a story one of the ideas of what the story is is the evolution of characters over time bruce banner is in a progression of how he deals with the Hulk. Right. And that at first it's just a monster he can't control, you know, and it's this horrible, awful thing. And now it's come to a place where he's found a way to control it to some degree. Yes. But, but he's doing exactly what you say, which is that's not me. Right. This is me. That's another guy. And I know how to not have the other guy come out, but what is his secret? That he's always angry. And you know what that means? His secret is he is the other guy. Yes, right, exactly, which he's not come to terms with. You know? And that that's the evolution. Where are we going to go later on is that he's finally going to reconcile yeah. himself and the other guy. Right. So so while there's some plot things and things that don't quite hang together for me, this one really does. Yeah. That that really, really works. Um, and then just as you, as you said, Cap also doesn't trust fury and so what's he doing he's breaking in to look at what the phase two stuff is and this is where i get to well screw up somebody get mad at me because my analysis sometimes can go in certain directions right and 
I'm an analytical guy. You may not always agree with me. You may think I'm going too far over the edge on some things or whatever, but I can't stop who I am. So if you listen to these shows, this is who I am. So I feel like recently I've been a, a, a kind of been attacked for my analysis and my approach to things at a larger number than I have before. And it's kind of just bothered me because I like to be able to analyze things. And I may not always be right or, or, or anything like that, but I, I kind of cherish that my ability to do that. And so with this, I think with Cap, he represents America, as I said, in so many ways earlier, like the God yeah. thing, yeah. you know, trying to do what's right, you know, being the peacekeeper between the two or whatever. And, and in this situation, the same thing. He wants everyone to follow orders, but here he is breaking the orders. That's the yeah. thing. That's the dichotomy of America. We want to be the number one country in the world, but be the underdog at the same time, always. That's kind of our thing as Americans. It really is. We always feel like, well, we had to break out of England and we had to do the revolution. And now, you know, we, we have to keep proving ourselves as the number one country in the world and flexing our muscle. And we will get mad at other people breaking rules, but we will break rules if we need to. And so that's what Cap represents. America, for good and bad, Cap represents that. And I think in this moment where he changed, he, he just finished telling them to follow orders. Here he is not following orders, going on his own expedition, going down there, breaking into a, a place and then finding those uh, hydro weapons or hydra marked weapons that he'll later throw on the table. So, and I've wanted to do a deep dive on how much the Captain America character represents America and some of the things that America has done. And I've wondered how much the writers have really understood the subtlety of playing that truth about America that a lot of Americans don't really want to face, but it's actually the truth uh, underneath it all. And so I think that's what's fascinating about how this character progresses as the series or this, the MCU movies goes along. You, John, you made, I have had it now a full epiphany because, <laughs> okay, because we, what we just did with the Hulk, yeah. is track what his journey is through the whole MCU, right? Yeah. Is that he, it's the di dichotomy between him and the other guy and how he reconciles that. Right. In Cap's origin story, yeah. right as he becomes Captain America, a spy for Hydra kills Erskine, right? Right. So there is instantly, we're in America and there is someone betraying America right. at the moment of his creation. Yeah. And now we have him again, trying to be the hero, yeah. but being forced to face that within America, there are these secrets that are dangerous. Yeah. And where is where are we going to see Cap after the Avengers? What's next for Cap? Um, Civil War. Right? Oh, no, Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier. Oh, that starts to happen. That's and right. what's Winter Soldier about? Yeah, it's all political intrigue and Nick Fury lying to him about what S.H.I.E.L.D. is actually doing. And then we find out that Hydra... Has yeah. infiltrated Shield. Yeah, it's so the so one of of course one of the central conflicts as we you know we discussed is Cap and Tony. Yeah, but one of the other things is Captain America, and America. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. is that the difference? And with the way I always put it, it's the difference between the dream of what America should be, right, and the reality of what America sometimes is. Yeah. Well, and again, this is why, even though I have criticisms of the movie, this is why. In terms of heavy lifting, yeah. the Avengers is amazing that it does all these things. And then we cut to, as I mentioned before, uh, Joss Whedon wanted Coulson to have moments with each of the Avengers, and this is his moment with Thor. Yeah. Because the first thing he tells him is that Jane is safe. Thank you. It's no accident, Loki, taking Eric Selvig. Eric is a good man. He talks about you a lot. You changed his life. 
It changed everything around here. Which I think is a really interesting point that it's not the creation of Captain America. It's not Hydra. Yeah. It's not Iron Man. It's Thor yeah. that really freaked out the world. And then Nick Fury comes up. And I find this scene really weird because if if I understand the scene correctly, Nick Fury is asking if Thor is willing to torture his brother. Is that yeah, what he's, he's about? Yeah, he's essentially saying that because he's saying to him, he's using the old Sean Connery line. Exactly. You know, how much are you prepared to do? That's basically what he's saying. Are you willing to sacrifice the com- comfortability of your brother to get the truth, to get the answers? You know, and this is Fury sliding into a little bit of a desperate area here because – Asking a family member to torture another family member for information, that's a, a lot of violations there going on. I, I find it a really weird thing. And not Fury's supposed to be a very smart, sophisticated guy. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a smart... I, I don't think there's any way Thor tortures his brother. Right. You know? Um, and then we're back with Loki, and he turns around and smiles because there is Natasha, and he says, There's not many people who can sneak up on me. I'm going to say right now, watching this scene, fucking fooled me again. I had forgotten the twist. And I was watching it going, wait, this doesn't feel right. This isn't right. Like, I don't, maybe, you know, Doss didn't do a good job with this. And then the twist happens. I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Twist. (laughs) And it's a good one. Scarlett does a great job. Almost. It's great. And she comes asking about Barton and that she's got, you know, red in her ledger. She's got debt. And she's asking what's going to happen to him. And while this is happening, Cap has broken into this warehouse and he is opening up some crate. And this is the phase two stuff. And we see something in there, like a helmet and a weapon or something. And Loki, and this is, I think, I think uh, Tom Hiddleston is great. And this is a great Loki scene because you see him go directly at her weak spot. Can you wipe out that much red? Dracoff's daughter, Sao Paulo. The hospital fire. And we'll see that come back, obviously, in the Black Widow movie. Yeah. Uh, the idea, the the daughter aspect of it all. Your ledger is dripping. It's gushing red. And you think saving a man no more virtuous than yourself will change anything? This is the basest sentimentality. This is a child of prayer. Pathetic. By the way, the way they built the set, which is there is really this glass cage, yeah. is that there was no way to do a close-up of Scarlett Johansson from where she's sitting without shooting through the glass. So they had to shoot through the glass in order to get her close-up, and they discovered that reflection shot. <laughs> oh, wow. And it's a fantastic shot. It is. Of Loki's reflection with her reacting to all this. Yeah. You lie and kill in the service of liars and killers. That's a great line. It is. Yeah, it's like a Kurtz line, you know? Yeah. Murder is like handing out speeding tickets at the Indianapolis 500. How, it, I'll ask it this way. On a scale from one to 10, yes. how evil is S.H.I.E.L.D.? With 10 being super evil and one being <laughs> not evil at all. Like most intelligence organizations, um, I th- they don't think they're evil. Right, of course. But they're willing to break the rules in the process of trying to, because they think they're protecting the country. Right. Um, evil is a tough word. I don't know if evil is the word I would use, but misguided, maybe? Uh, I would say around five or six. What about you? Oh, wow. I was going to put it, because I, I, that to me puts the scale on the evil side. They're more evil than they are good. Wow. 
I probably, if you say five or six, I put them at a four. Okay. Which is that they could, you know, easily, if, you know, because he just asked Thor to torture his brother. Right. Like, if Thor, if they did torture Loki, they're really getting towards the eviler side mm -hmm. for me. This is my second question. Yeah. How evil on a scale from one to 10 does Natasha think S.H.I.E.L.D. is? In other words, is she 100% accurate in her view of what S.H.I.E.L.D. is, or are they worse than she thinks they, that it is? Uh, that's a great question. Um, it's tough to say, because, I mean, what she, what we find out, it's really tough to say now, right. after the Black Widow movie. Because mm. before the Black Widow movie, I think you could say that she would never see them as evil, because they saved her. They right. gave her a way out. But now that we've got a full fleshed out story with Black Widow from the Black Widow movie, I would say that she may see how evil they are in certain ways, but they're not as evil as what she left. So there's a right. virtue in being a part of this organization and what it's trying to do, which is to protect the world from things like she left there in the Black Widow film. Because there are things for both her and for Clint. Uh-huh. They clearly have done some shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, in the service of right. protecting the country or whatever. And that that's why I think it's important to think of like they they I think both Natasha and Clint really do believe that even if they're doing some dark shit, that they're doing it for a good cause. Well, that's what the intelligence organization is designed to do is yeah. to is to absolutely manipulate your mind to believe that. Yeah. For sure. And, and you know what? And in my opinion, th that's how we stay alive as a country is to have an effective intelligence organization, multiple ones that keep us where we're at. Because people are always trying to infiltrate and destroy and kill and explode and hurt and, and uh, you know, tear down your uh, country. Um, so you've got to have uh, a good intelligence, a number of good intelligence organizations. And, you know, listen, it's like, it's, you know, it's like that's why Sicario is one of my favorite films. Sure. Because the drug war is not this fucking black and white thing they pitch you in 30-second commercials. What Emily Blunt discovers in that film is what the drug war actually is, which is gray with a lot of violated ethics or whatever because the greater good is more important. To me, there's just – and obviously, this is a, this is a whole – not even yeah. a cinephile short. It's a cinephile's <laughs> you know, huge. But, Sounds like a nation show, yeah. Yeah, but uh, to me, it's uh, – there's a balance here because – like, are there threats and do you need intelligence organizations to deal with those threats? And do those organizations have to push the boundaries sometimes? Yeah, they do. And do they have our many, many times in our history to have those boundaries been pushed too far in ways that were not just evil, even if we put aside good and evil, but were detrimental? You know, it's like uh, Abu Ghraib being an example of a lot of prisoners being tortured. Sure. That didn't make us safer. That made us put us more at risk. Right. Because it created more enemies. Yep. Agree. And didn't get us very much in return. Right. You know, and so, so, and, and really, you know, I know that that's a deep, that's, that's heavy shit to be bringing to the Avengers movie. <laughs> but that is, in fact, what Loki is talking about with Natasha, that she's done some dark shit. Yes. Right. And, her reaction when you're in the scene makes you think that, you know, she, uh, she's aware of it. And I think she is. Uh, and I, I think she does, even with the twist, she later on, we see Natasha say I've been compromised and it's because Loki knows all this shit about her. I think her genuine reaction is there, but again, the bigger picture is for her to get the information and then deal with the ramifications of all that later. I mean, look, Natasha is someone who has suffered an incredible amount of trauma yeah. Untangling those wires would take years. Yeah. You know, and we don't 
obviously get that because of what happens in in uh, Endgame. But um, yeah, this is a woman who suffered an incredible amount of trauma. You know, I, I I totally agree with you, and I think she is capable. This is her getting information from Loki. Yes, and she is capable of having control of her emotions. Yeah. But it doesn't mean she's not having the emotions. Exactly. I think those emotions are real. Swallowing her trauma is just standard operating procedure yeah. because she's been trained to look at the bigger picture. And man, Loki's threat to her is horrible. <laughs> I won't touch Barton, not until I make him kill you. Slowly, intimately, in every way he knows you fear. And then he'll wake just long enough to see his good work. And when he screams, I'll split his skull. Tell me again how these are comic book throwaway movies. That's so brutal what he's describing. It's 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 uh, uh, Pesci putting that guy's head in a vice with those eyes pop out. Like this idea that somehow these are, you know, dress up films when the things they explore are pretty evil and unsettling. It always makes me crack up uh, because it feels like people haven't watched these movies. Well, and I would also go, tell me how we think that Loki should be redeemed. Yeah, a great point. I mean, that is fucking horrible. Yeah. <laughs> he also, by the way, he says, this is my bargain, you mudly, you mulling quim. Yeah. Um, it's always interesting to me when really nasty insults that Americans don't understand end up in movies. <laughs> Like, um, that's a pretty bad one. You're a monster. <laughs> oh, no. You brought the monster. And then where she was weeping and moved, she turns around completely calm and said, So, Banner, that's your play. And I love watching Loki get flummoxed. Yeah. <laughs> And what's so interesting about the scene is that this is literally exactly what she was doing when she we met her. Yeah. Make it look like she's in a weak position when, in fact, she's getting the answer she wants. Loki means to unleash the Hulk. Keep Banner in the lab. I'm on my way. Send Thor as well. And I love that she ends with... Thank you for your cooperation. So this next scene, Joss describes as the most difficult scene in the movie. Mm. They spent an h- entire week shooting it. And, and it makes sense. It's incredibly complicated. There's so many things going on, so many conflicts. What is phase two? A big gun is slammed down on the table and there is Cap. Phase two is S.H.I.E.L.D. uses the cube to make weapons. And Nick Fury's trying to kind of weasel his way out of it and they don't let him. And then Thor and Natasha enter. And again, Natasha just found out that Loki's whole plan has to do with Bruce Banner. And she doesn't come in and go, hey, everybody, stop everything. I just found this out. Right. She hints at it, kind of, but she should actually interrupt. You know, this is a big information that she just got. I'd like to know why S.H.I.E.L.D. is using the Tesseract to build weapons of mass destruction. Because of him. And points to Thor. Uh, Joss said a really interesting thing about this scene. He said, this is a scene all about the characters being the farthest thing possible from a team. Mm -hmm. Like this is the low point of them being a team. And what he said was, this is also a scene where the actors were working as the best team they ever were in the entire film. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because the rhythm of the script they have to hit the rhythm of the script. And this scene reminds me of that um, musical song or that scene in the musical Into the Woods 
when they're singing, well, it's her fault and it isn't mine at all, where they're constantly right. blaming each other for who brought the giant. Yeah. Right. And if for those of you who hadn't listened, haven't listened to that song, listen to the song and then watch this scene. Um, and uh, I think it's called Your Fault, Last Slash Last Midnight. And watch, listen, watch, listen, watch that scene. Uh, it's on YouTube, I'm sure. And then watch this scene. It's literally the same thing. You know, the, right. the, the swinging of who's at fault, the jabs, the personal jabs, and uh, everyone getting their shots in, leading to that moment with uh, Banner holding the scepter. Um, I would recommend listening to it at least twice, <laughs> maybe three <laughs> yeah. times, because, man, you know, we talk about we've said that despite some things we might feel about Joss Whedon, he is he's a good writer. Yeah. Stephen Sondheim is a great writer. He is. And the light, there's so much in that song. Yeah. So many things going on. It's kind of amazing. It's very layered. As they're arguing about, you know, Asgard and what Thor did and what he's responsible for. And everyone is starting to argue. The camera pushes in past everyone, yeah. goes up and points down at the scepter and comes around the other side and points back at the at the Avengers all upside down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And that for me is the moment that it's like, oh, the scepter is doing this. Yes. It's a great shot. Agreed. Joss thought they were going to have to just create it digitally in post. And the camera crew said, no, no, I think we can figure out how to do this. It's a really difficult shot and it looks beautiful. Yeah, it does. And then we cut from there to a plane that is basically tracking the scepter. Yeah. And there is Barton with his bow. And we're like, oh, shit. I mean, what are we, a team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. We're, we're a time bomb. You need to step away. And Tony is encouraging him. And he puts his hand on Cap's shoulder. Why shouldn't the guy let off a little steam? You know damn well why. Back off. Oh, I'm starting to want you to make me. And this is where it's like, yes, this has got to be the scepter. Because it's getting really extreme. And, and, and you know, Tony, Cap's going. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off. What are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. I know guys with none of that worth 10 of you. Which is, of course, Cap's thing, right? Because yeah. he was always, uh, he's still, you know, you talk to people who lose weight or change their bodies. The struggle is not always the lifting of the weights and the working out. The struggle is, how do I let go of remembering that I was the fat kid or that I was the out of shape kid or the skinny kid or whatever? Yeah. It's tough to do, and that people that that whole emotional mental health journey is very difficult to navigate, and it's as important as showing up to the gym almost every day, because you slide back into those uh, patterns really easily, and start to lose the gains and start to lose the uh, definition because you're lost in the uh, mental health cycle of, of depression or whatever low self esteem. So it's very deep, you know. It's attached to the bones almost that kind of belief which is why it's so hard to kind of turn it around. The same thing here, and that's what Steve is doing. Steve is, you know, essentially fighting from that place. Like, you're the guy that never gave me a shot. You're the kind of assholes that, you know, you guys, the rich guys, right, blah, blah, blah. And certainly we know him and Stark, his dad, uh, Tony's dad, had their yeah. interactions as well and their, their differences of opinion. So all of that is coming out here. And the thing is, and it's connected to what you brought up earlier, Steve, the idea of the other guy. Every single person in this team has another guy. Yeah. Right, like Steve was the skinnier kid, right? Who who became the thing, 
Tony was a pretty um, self-involved, selfish asshole, that other guy that he was before. Natasha, that other woman that she was before they turned her into this assassin. Banner, right? Obviously, the Banner situation. Um, So everyone's got another guy that they're struggling with. Thor, the arrogant prick was before versus the person I'm trying to be now. So there's that other guy is who is coming out in this moment when you're seeing or the other woman rather is coming out when you're having these interactions and battles, which I think is, is human nature, you know, cause defense mechanisms are always there and they're built there to keep us in our own minds safe from attack. Again, this is what I love having these conversations. Cause I literally never had this thought before. And I just had another huge thought about cap, yeah. which is it's, it's sort of based on what you've been saying, oh. but you know, there's sometimes the thing of, of, is Superman pretending to be Clark Kent or is Clark <laughs> Kent pretending to be Superman? I love that. It just occurred to me that Steve Rogers yeah. is still that skinny kid. Oh, yeah. That is who he is. Yes. That is his identity. Yes. Is that? And the skinny Steve had to work 10 times harder than everybody else. He had to continually prove himself. He had to show how brave he was. He had to show that he had value, that he had to have worth. And he is still that guy. He's still desperately trying to prove his worth. What did you know? I tell you? He represents America. Oh, uh, wow. Right? Sure. He is the number one guy, yet he still thinks he's the underdog. That's yep. why he represents America. I've seen the footage. The only thing you really fight for is yourself. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. I think I would just cut the wire. This is the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes. That moment right here. Cap is the guy that believes in self-sacrifice and doesn't trust that Tony believes in self-sacrifice. Right. He thinks Tony is just out for himself. It literally goes all the way to end game. Yeah. And what I think is so brilliant about the movie that we'll do seven years from now or something <laughs> in the end, Tony does self-sacrifice Yeah, sacrifices his life when he is at his happiest, most content moment. Yeah. And Steve Rogers doesn't No, He's selfish in the end. Yep. That is brilliant. He feels like he's earned it, so he gets to have his date with or his life with Peggy. Yeah. And that seed, that moment, that's set right here in this second of this line. Yep. And again, I go to this is Kevin Feige. This isn't, and it's not that Joss Whedon didn't write it or wasn't involved right, in it. Right, right, right. But this is seeing not just one movie, but seeing many, many, many movies down the line. That's Feige. He's always 10 years ahead of everybody. Uh, we cut quickly to Barton, who's knocked uh, an arrow, which he fires, and it hits something, and it's beeping. And we're like, oh, shit, something's going to happen. Here we go. Agent Romanoff, would you escort Dr. Banner back to his Where? room? Where? You rent in my room. The cell was just in, in case you needed to kill me, but you can't. I know. I tried. This line is a fantastic line. I got low. I didn't see an end, so I put a bullet in my mouth, and the other guy spit it out. The demon that you hate about yourself, hate it so much that you want to die, prevents you from dying. And could you imagine? I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, you could imagine better than I can. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I will say this, you know, as someone, as you know, and Steve um, clum- kind of clumsily alluded Very to clumsily. Well, I'm sorry. Which I appreciate and, and, and you know, love him for. But yeah, that's what it is. And uh, sometimes it is the other guy who keeps you alive. Because sometimes it's the other guy that although everything in your body says you want to take your own life, that other guy shows up to Mm. either stop you or, in my case, to get you to call a suicide prevention hotline and stop you. And so 
you just never know. And so uh, there's there's so many there's so much in that moment because it's out of the blue. All of a sudden, Bruce surrenders this, yeah, essentially a suicide story, and you're like, whoa, because we just had them all going at each other. And it might be a credit to Whedon that he does it this way, that he has them going at each other uh, in such a uh, uh, extreme way so that when this moment happens, it really puts the brakes on everything and gets you to change a little bit of perspective right before Barton blows everything up. So in a way, he kind of resets them before Barton blows them up, tries to blow them up so that you can now go back into cheering for them as they go into this fight here with Barton and his crew, you know? So it's, it's a little bit of genius to do it that way. And now they're all looking at Banner and he, and his intensity is just kind of growing. So I moved on. I focused on helping other people. I was good until you dragged me back into this freak show and put everyone here at risk. You want to know my secret agent Romanoff? You want to know how I stay calm? We're back to the secret. Yeah. But we're not going to reveal the secret. And everyone starts putting their hands on their guns, and we're going like, what the fuck is going on right now? Yeah, yeah. And then... Dr. Banner. Put down the scepter. And we cut to a wide shot, and he's holding the scepter. He didn't even know he was holding it. Yeah. Put the bunny down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now multiple things are going to happen at once. First of all, they found the Tesseract. Yes. So the beeping happens. We've located it. Then we have multiple arguments at the same time. Thor goes, okay, we found the Tesseract. It has to go back to Asgard. I'm like, no, we don't want you to do that. Cap and Tony are arguing, and it's and it's escalating. He says, you're not going alone. You're going to stop me? Put on the suit. Let's find out. I'm not afraid to hit an old man. Put on the suit. And Banner is getting more tense, and things are looking real bad. And right at that moment, Hawkeye triggers the explosion. And all hell is about to break loose. And I think when all hell is break, about to break loose, that seems like the perfect time to end part one of the Avengers. Huh? <laughs> As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I feel like I feel like we got into some not only deep stuff about the Avengers, but some deep stuff in general. So I'd love to hear your reactions to some of the epiphanies that we have. You could check us out on Facebook, do a search for the Cinephiles on Twitter. We're Cine underscore files on Instagram. It's, it's Cinephiles podcast. And, of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify or Stitcher. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. And I think you should become a Patreon. John, don't you think these people should become patrons? Absolutely. Come be a patron and, and support everything we've got going on and have a real hand in, like, the movies we talk about, the uh, the reactions we do. Uh, and when we have these conversations, there's so many benefits and so many um, uh, positive things you can get from being a patron of the cinephiles for sure. And we've got so many benefits that we're, in, we're working in on to bring to you all to, uh, you know, kind of earn the money that you'll be doing if you support us or if you jump up another level to support everything we got going on here on the cinephiles for sure. Um, and you would do that at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you feel like buying the Avengers or any other movie we've ever done, you can buy or stream it on cinephiles.net. You can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, and of course, enterprise incidents for all your Star Trek needs. John, how would people find the outlaw? <laughs> you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the outlaw nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash John Roca says, and my other podcasts, the uh, Geek Buddies and the Top Ten. Um, yeah, there you go. And that's it for this week. And we will conclude our exploration of the Avengers next time 
on the Cinephiles. <laughs>